All right, so let's begin the actual podcast, I guess. We'll see if there's anything in this preceding long amount of time that's worth saving. But uh, anyway, so we've been chatting for about, uh, what, an hour and a half already pre-podcast. So I, hopefully we've got all of our uh, digressions out of us. <laughs> well, we'll see, I guess. Sorry. Uh, so welcome back right, to so Super yeah, so Science. Happy hour. Uh, sorry, were you going to say something? I was going to say welcome to the Super Science Happy Hour. Oh, all right. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we right, let's, a lot try of... that, uh, let's try that again. <laughs> All right. Take two. You can, you can say welcome. Cause I usually have started talking in the last few. No, no, you introduce us. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, welcome back to the super science happy hour, uh, with Matt and Matt. I'm Matt. I'm also Matt. And, uh, and, uh today we've got a bunch of random topics for you, uh, as usual. Yep. So I guess we could start off, uh, Matt Johnson. I have a brain teaser for you that I saw on the internet. Okay, well, uh, before we jump to the brain teaser, can we just do some intros? Well, what intro stuff do we have to oh, do, yeah, I guess? Do- I guess uh, we pretty much covered it, I guess. Um, you know, we spent the first, like, hour and 45 minutes or whatever we've been talking so far dealing with technical issues. So uh, just to update you, we're back to uh, our episodes one and two recording method because my shiny new microphone that I bought is giving us trouble. So, uh, you know... We could still welcome contributions to the microphone fund, although at this point we might have to figure out some some low-level technical issues to uh, get that working. Um, any other old news to bring up? Nothing comes to mind. All right. Uh, so you want to do your uh, brain teaser? All right. So this is a brain teaser I got from the internet, but it's actually kind of good. It would make a good like AP physics question. Okay. All right. So so here's the setup. I I, I have become a an evil genius dictator. And I'm going to take my, my revenge out on you for some imagined podcast-related slight. Naturally. And the way I'm going to do that is that I'm going to make you eat three cookies. Okay. So far, not anything out of the ordinary for me. <laughs> Except that that's less than usual. The catch is that the cookies are radioactive. Wait, what, what is that Simpsons episode that this sounds like? It's, uh, uh, what is it, the, the, where he gets the wish, the monkey's paw kind of thing? I think it is the monkey's paw. You know what I'm talking about. The Froyo is cursed. Yep. I just can't remember the dialogue. Maybe we'll insert it afterwards because uh, that's a funny scene. Anyway, the, the, the Froyo is cursed, right? And it contains monosodium yes. glutamate or... No, it's sodium benzoate, <laughs> I think. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. The three cookies are poisoned. Yes, but so these cookies are also cursed and they're radioactive. Okay. So one cookie is, is full of alpha emitters, one cookie is full of beta emitters, and one cookie is full of gamma emitters. Okay. And I'm going to make you eat one of the cookies, keep one of the cookies in your pocket, and you can put the third cookie into the lead box. And, okay. you know, no cheating, like trying to cram all three cookies in the lead box or into my pocket. All right, so what are you going to do? And one of them I get to leave on the other side of the lake with the goat, right? Yeah, in a box. Okay. Made of lead. Sure. All right, so... Oh, so which do I do with which cookie? So I've got alpha, beta, and gamma emitters. One I eat, one goes. So, uh, well, what do I know about them? They they emit like that's all you know. Well, I don't know how much of each type of radiation they're emitting. Oh, and you can assume that they're they're all like I, my evil scientist minions have engineered them to be you know equally radioactive. All right, I presume. Let me think about this. Trying to think. I mean, I'm assuming gamma would be in the lead box, but I could be wrong about. I mean, that seems to be the most logical to me. Because gamma okay. penetrates the most, right? So you would want it. 
I would say, uh, my instinct would be to say, beta, uh, I would say gamma in the box eat, eat alpha and beta goes in the pocket because the beta would be sufficiently blocked, I would think, by like your clothing material, but I could be wrong. I don't know. What's the right answer? Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends, but, uh, the answer that I saw was that actually you do the opposite. Oh, so okay. you, you, uh, you can put your al the alpha in your pocket, right? Because it's going to get blocked. Or sorry, you eat the gamma first of all. You oh wait, eat the wait, gamma. Sir, I, you know I mixed up alpha and beta. Beta is uh, is electron based, right? And alpha is a is a helium uh, is a nucleus. Yep. Oh, so that's what mm -hmm. I meant actually. So yeah, alpha the helium nucleus goes in your pocket because it's heavy and uh, and won't make it through your clothes. And the yeah, okay, go ahead. Right, but actually, you probably eat the gamma. You do eat the gamma. Uh, so the solution I saw was that you eat the gamma. And what's the logic? I mean, that was something I was entertaining. Like, like would most of the gamma pass through your body? Like, you're not thick enough to uh, to absorb the gamma. Yeah, exactly. So, so the gamma has got like very good penetrance, right? But it, it's probably not going to interact with as much stuff in your body. Yeah. Whereas the the like the alpha, right, can't penetrate very far, but but it's gonna screw up everything that it touches. Yeah. I mean, that makes some sense to me, but uh, this is one of those things where, like, I have a sense of what all these things are, but I have no practical knowledge of what they would do in a real-life situation, you know? Well, to be honest, this is not a fairly realistic situation where someone is going to make you eat a cookie that's radioactive. <laughs> One never knows. Well, that's a good, that is a good brain teaser. Um, speaking of brain teasers, I recently gave, well, I sent out to my programming students and did not get any enthusiasm back from them. Have you ever done, um, I think the guy's name is Jim Prop. He was at MIT and now he's somewhere else. Uh, he has a, what's called the self-referential aptitude test. No. Go on. I like this. No, you, you will really like this. You will waste like two hours of your life on this when I, if I send it to you. Um, but it's this, if you, if you can Google it right now and see what it is, and maybe I will too, so I can describe it sufficiently on the podcast. Oh my God. This is awesome. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. Uh, so this was actually given to me, um, by Brian Scholl, uh, when I was an undergrad. Of course. Yeah. So he, he gave it to everybody in his Cogsci class. And if, that, that was the first time I worked through it, but I've come back to it every few years when I forget the solution and do it again. So it's questions like, so it's a, what is it? It's a 20 question multiple choice test where it's A, B, C, D, or E for each question. But the questions are things like, the first question whose answer is B is question 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5. The number of questions with the answer A is 4 questions, 5 questions, 6 questions, and so on. So it's all, it's a, like just this gigantic spaghetti of a, of a, of a logic test, and it's, it's pretty great, actually. There's only one question? Oh, God, yeah. I was going to try to do this during the podcast, but I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. I like number 19. The answer to this question is choice A, A, choice B, B, choice C. And a lot of them, like that one, for example, seems like all five choices are valid. That would be absolutely evil if just two of them are switched. Well, I mean, uh, so I've done this before, and of course you completely screw yourself up if you cross out one thing incorrectly or circle one thing correctly, uh, you know, in the course of doing it. But um, yeah, there's only one question with like, so you have to start with the last question, which is an SAT-style analogy with actual content. Oh, cool. So someone has a solver for it that just runs a genetic algorithm, and it's gone. Ah, that's too bad. 
Well, the problem, the problem is I think you can't even really, I mean, I guess you could program a computer to do it. Oh yeah. Well, it's a constraint satisfaction problem, right? I guess it is. Yeah. I mean, I guess there should only be one solution that works. I mean, there is a solution that is the one that you can logically deduce like stepwise by going through it. I assume there are no, I assume there could be tests like this that have valid solutions that you could not reach by a direct chain, like a, a chain of inferences. Do you know what I mean? Where you have to like guess something and then see if it holds like, up. Like, yeah, if you, if you guessed all possible combinations, there might be additional solutions, but they couldn't be reached via deduction. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Uh, I think that's, I think that sounds like a theorem I'd like to prove, but I don't know what the answer is. It sounds like an incomplete theorem, if you know what I mean. Yeah, kind of. Um, well, I mean, there's certainly situations, right, where like there are multiple solutions to like a logical problem that are not inconsistent with the problem specified, right? I mean, there are many cases yep. of problems like that. And, you know, all answers that don't logically contradict any of the premises are equally valid. But usually that means that I guess the premises insufficiently specify a unique answer. Okay, so here I found a, a note from uh, Professor Prop. Yeah. It says that the test only has one unique solution. I mean, that should be the case. But it's possible to find this unique solution without making use of the fact that the solution is unique. So that 10 times fast. Yeah, I mean, you should be able to like step through all the logical necessities of things. But uh, it's, it's very, un as you'll find when you start working through it, it's not super straightforward. Like, it's not just that like you can look at one question and deduce the answer to another question. You, you often have to like go a few chains of logic deep to like cross something out. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the like formal solution and to get the answer to number 14, you need one, two, three. Oh, you need, you need basically all the other questions. Well, I mean, a lot of them sound like you need basically all the other answers, but it has nine separate constraints on them. Yeah. On answering it. Well, I mean, you know, and you can make some inferences by the answer choices that are given. But uh, anyway, I, I that's that's a good one for homework. But uh, we probably don't want to go too deep on that one. But we'll we'll make everyone do it and see how they do on it. Uh, speaking of genetic algorithms, um, did you see the link that I posted? Because that would be an, an okay segue to the the video. No, uh, tell me about it. Uh, so it says the the title of the video is Carl Sims Evolved Virtual Creatures Evolution Simulation 1994. Oh, glad we're, glad we're getting cutting up to date news. Well, I know it's not it's not like super up to date, but that's I kind of thought it was cool insofar as like it's so old and yet it looks pretty sophisticated actually in what it is. So uh, I, I only mentioned this because like you mentioned genetic algorithms, which I have been thinking about a fair bit recently. Maybe do you want to tell the people what your what what a def, what you would define a genetic algorithm as? Okay, so the idea is that uh, you often have a problem where you want to find a solution, and but you don't you don't know sort of what the solution is. So for a lot of problems, uh, but you could sorry, so you don't know what the solution is, but you have an idea of sort of what it might look like, and you have an idea you could tell whether a given solution is good or bad. Uh, and actually, even more than that, you could tell whether the solution is sort of close to what you want or far away from what you want. Right. Um, so the idea is that you can evolve a solution. So you start with a whole bunch of sort of uh, possible ideas for solution, and then you evaluate their fitness. So you, you say that this one is a very good solution, this one's kind of a terrible solution, 
and then you rank them all. And the, the idea is that you can then sort of evolve a solution just the way that the way that sort of plants and animals evolve by combining bits of the other solutions. Uh, sort of you have the mate and it gives you a whole new set of candidates and then you rank them again. And then the ones that sort of are, are very fit, that is they're very close to the, the right or close to the, a good solution, uh, sort of get to mate more and the solutions that are terrible. Uh, they're sort of like me and Matt Johnson, uh, mate less. <laughs> and, uh, and so you repeat the cycle over and over again. The idea is that you'll eventually evolve a solution that's sort of optimal and your, your sort of terrible solutions will die away. So it's sort of a really cool analogy. Um, and for a while, everyone was, was in sort of machine learning and computer science was crazy about this. And sort of like all things, it, it fell out of fashion and then it's fallen back into fashion. Well, this is exactly kind of leading into what I was thinking so about. So this looks like uh, it was. Uh, this looks like it was from the last time this was in fashion. Oh, this is really cool. Yeah. So I mean, I very much like you, and uh, I think probably the rest of society go back and forth as to how cool I think the idea and the practice of genetic algorithms is. Because I mean, um, I think one thing that's true is that. In a in an uninteresting way, people use genetic algorithms all the time, right? Because um, it's just an efficient way to solve a problem uh, if there are uh, many possible solutions, but you don't know an exact way of finding a good one. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I think the catch, like, like with all algorithm things, the catch is that there are all these like sort of fussy details where you can get trapped in sort of what people call a local minimum, where or a local maxima. Where, you know, changing a little bit either way doesn't help, but you need to make sort of like a big, big, huge, like push sort of to get you over one mountain and right. onto the next one. You're sidelining quite a bit, by the way, but I'm kind of getting what you're saying. Yep. Well, that's topically appropriate here. Well, it's true. Yeah. I mean, um, the dirty secret, I think, of a lot of, uh, of computer programming stuff, especially things that sound really cool, like neural networks and genetic algorithms and if you want to get super sexy, neural networks that employ genetic algorithms, is that a lot of things depend on your implementation details. And there's, it's, when you say I'm using a genetic algorithm, it's not like you just sort of plug your problem into this one magical, um, mathematical solution and, and it figures out, or this mathematical, like, method and it, it magically figures out your solution. You have to kind of painstakingly, uh, implement the way that your genetic algorithm is going to work and set all these constraints and set like exactly how fast things evolve and so forth. And if you don't get all those things just right, it's not going to work at all, right? Exactly, which is why, uh, dear listeners, if you'd like to hire someone to do this, my rates are very reasonable. Mine are, yeah, exactly. Mine mine are somewhat reasonable. Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by reasonable. But uh, yeah, uh, so I mean, in the, in the dumb way, you can use this for all kinds of things because I, I use them for things like... Um, if I'm, and I don't know if you use them in your everyday work, but like if I'm trying to generate, uh, I was just doing this recently with uh, my PhD student. We're doing a task that involves words and we're trying to generate lists of stimuli, you know, of, of 20 words or whatever. Um, and we want to make a bunch of lists of 20 words that are not different from each other on length or frequency in the language or various other factors. And with a lot of lists, this is actually kind of a difficult problem because if you get enough lists together and you're trying to equate them all on several different features, there's a high likelihood that one of those features, there's going to be a difference between a couple of lists. So you're generating like candidate lists and then sort of seeing if you can clean them up? 
Well, yeah. So, I mean, this is not a particularly smart genetic algorithm application, but basically, I mean, what you would do if you were a human, and my old lab mate used to do this uh, when she had word lists to do, is, you know, you make a bunch of lists and you say, and you do a bunch of statistical tests between all the lists on all of the features that you're comparing them on and say, oh, look, these two lists are significantly different. I'm going to try swapping out a word from each list and see if they get less different, you know, by, by swapping words with other lists or your, or your pool of words that you haven't drawn from yet or whatever. Um, but of course, if you're a human, like it would take her weeks to just get, um, fairly well balanced lists of, of just poking around in Excel and doing this all semi by hand. And with a genetic algorithm, what you do is you generate a bunch of lists randomly and then you, you know, and you test them and see how, how different they are from each other. And then you make some, I mean, you can do it various ways, but the simplest way is to just, you know, swap one thing and, uh, you know, test that and so forth and, and keep whatever, you know, when you make a small change like that, what you would call a mutation, you just keep whichever version the lists are, uh, more different from each other on and keep going until you get, you know, a sufficiently different set of lists or sorry, I want them all to be the same. So, you know, keep whichever yeah. one, the lists are more same, similar, and then keep going until, you know, you reach what you're going for. Um, and I mean that, it, you know, there are all these details of like, I mean, that's the simplest genetic algorithm where it's a population of one or a population of two, I guess, one being what you used the last time and two being a minor mutation on that one. And you just keep whichever one is better. Um, that's kind of like an asexual reproduction, uh, genetic algorithm situation. But, you know, it works. So it works so that like, you know, once I had coded it, which took, uh, you know, uh, several hours of work, um, then it could actually generate, you know, a bunch of lists in like 10 minutes, you know, rather than what took my colleague like a couple of weeks. So it's good for that kind of thing when you, there's no particularly clever way to do it deductively, but, also doing it like randomizing every single possible combination of words would take so long that it's impossible. So you do something in between where you start off with something random and try to like gradually approximate a good solution. So the video, um, which we should pitch so you'll actually watch it because it's pretty cool. So he started with, uh, he has, he makes like creatures out of blocks. Uh, the video is by Carl Sims. So he makes these creatures out of blocks and they have like blocks and pivots and uh, so it looks like they're sort of bred and mutated uh, based on how quickly they can get to this like sort of red blob, which is their food. And it's really cool. So you end up seeing it starts off with a square that's just sort of like flopping around. And by the time it's done, you have this sort of pigeon-like thing and a thing that looks kind of like a spider. So they all exist in this kind of very simplified, like 1994 style 3D animation block world where, where basically all the creatures are just blocks joined together at the edges or at the corners. And they, they're in what looks like, well, I mean, it's just a flat plane, but the, the physics of the world seems to be kind of like an ocean floor where like the plane is, has some kind of friction to it. And then there's like a space of air or water above it that you can like flap around in. Right. Like that's kind of the physics that it seems to be implementing in the world. Yeah. So I don't know what you think, but like I, I was surprised by how cool I thought this was. I, I, and it sounds like you were too, right? Yeah. So the devil is definitely in the details. So there was a guy for a while who was trying to evolve like entire computer programs. Uh, but that ended up being, I think, more or less bogus. So he couldn't get like even simple like arith arithmetical expressions to work. 
Yeah, those I look mean, suspiciously like sperm. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I I highly recommend the video. You should watch it. And despite what I just said, it's safe for work because it's a bunch of blocks squeaking yeah. around. Yeah, no, they they just have well. So that's the kind of the cool thing about this video, I think. So like, this is why I go back and forth as to whether genetic algorithms are cool because I remember when I first took this, like I took a computer science class where we talked about this stuff. You know, they went on and saying like, oh, you know, genetic algorithms can do all this stuff. Like you can use it. I remember they said like you can use it to build a better plane part and like teach a car to drive. And I was like, that's awesome. And then I sort of realized that like a lot of those things, uh, although, you know, that is cool, a lot of those were just kind of things like, like what I was doing with my stimulus list is you take a relatively simple problem that just has a lot of free parameters and you try to find like a better fit to that set of parameters than you could get by just kind of varying them on, on your own by hand, right? Um, which is cool, but like not that cool, right? Cause you're just optimizing a set of parameters for some, some mathematical problem. Oh, if you're going to be boring like that, everything's a parameter optimization. Well, it's true. But I mean, the, the cool thing, well, that's why I think these creatures are cool is that like, if you listen to the specification of the problem, it wouldn't sound that interesting. But then what's cool about them, I think, is when you look at them, they're surprisingly like biologically, you know what I mean? They look like they have agency and they seem to move like real things like fish and sperms and, uh, and, you know, little, little bipeds and so forth and snakes. And, you know, you'd have to go into the, the source code to find out like how much of that stuff is built into how the guy implemented the world. But it's, it's pretty cool how like, you know, presumably with relatively few parameters, you end up with something that looks like a biological system. Oh yeah. Although, I mean, people see agency everywhere, right? Like, isn't that that classic video with the triangle and the square? Yeah, the um, I can never remember what that's called. That's a that's a famous famous uh, psych experiment. I can uh, agency psych. I have to cut out all the parts that make it sound stupid. Yes, please. Hyder symbol. The Hyder symbol shapes. Um, yes. We should link. We should link to this as well because this is like a classic. So I'll send you the classic Hyder symbol video. So yep. this is the original. There are many later versions. So the, actually. Funny enough, this is another thing uh, that I first saw in the the my undergrad class by Brian Scholl was the, an updated version of the Hyder and Symbol video. Are you watching it now? I am, but you should talk about it. I've... Well, so basically, it, this is the idea that that humans are sort of naturally geared to perceive agency and sort of arbitrary stimuli, right? So what the video is, as you'll see if you go to our website, sshmm.wordpress.com, and, and check out the link. It's just uh, like a series of, it's three little shapes, a circle and two triangles, a big triangle and a little triangle, and like a kind of a, a rectangular shape. And, you know, all the shapes kind of move around. Uh, and of course they're just shapes, but what it looks like to you is that, you know, one of the shapes is chasing the other, uh, you know, one of the shapes is helping the other evade the, the shape that's doing the chasing, you know, they're kind of running away from each other and, uh, you know, breaking in and out of the box that they are, uh, that's on the screen. And, you know, you can sort of make a, a narrative with personalities and stuff out of this, these two triangles in the square, right? And there are, there are other videos, uh, that are examples of this where like, you know, you can tell that the shapes are like, you know, one's being shy or one's being like sexy or whatever. 
And of course, they're just shapes, right? So there's no reason to perceive them as having animacy, but you can. But I think the amazing thing is that people come up with more or less the same story, right? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, they use this in all kinds of things. Like, I believe if you test kids with autism, you know, they're less good at telling the story and so forth. But it's just sort of a good example, yeah, of like how 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 naturally we can we we do this. And of course, you see this in everyday life, right? Like you, people say, like, oh, my computer hates me, or you know, they attribute feelings to like bugs and stuff like that. They couldn't possibly have like that level of complexity or you know complex goals or so forth, right? Yep. Oh, definitely. Did you see the video about the guy that uh, was teaching his computer to play Mario? Yes, uh, that was pretty cool too. That also goes along with the genetic algorithms discussion, although it's not the same kind of thing. I actually was just watching it. Uh, I thought he did some. I thought he did some sort of optimization to get there too, right? It wasn't like. A... I actually need to read his paper. Uh, his is a good example of one where I really need to know his algorithm to know how cool it is, right? Oh, you got an actual pen? Oh, I know this guy. He taught me to program. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, God, that is a small world. How, how do you know this guy? When I was like, I don't know, a little kid, my parents sent me to the science camp for the summer. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, Tom Murphy was the guy who taught me how to program. Oh, my God. Well, you know that I was a, <laughs> you know I was a camp counselor at one of those other nerd camps, right? Yeah, but do you randomly show up on YouTube? Well, I do, actually, but... <laughs> oh, that's true. Oh, speaking of which, we sh I should plug my computer science uh, or my programming class later on. Or I could pl plug, plug it right now. It's called Programming for Psychologists. I'll link it in the show notes. Oh, wow. Okay, so yeah, if, if assuming he hasn't changed since I was like 12. and So his name is, uh, well, his website is tom7.org. I don't know what his... It's Tom Murphy. Um, okay. I think he's the seventh, although I don't know if that's a real seventh or not. He's Tom Murphy the seventh? Well, you know, it's not like it's a rare name. No, it's true. It's just, uh, that's you know, that's a lot of commitment. You could have a Matt Johnson, the, well, probably third or fourth before you die. Well, i got to work on the second first. Yeah. This guy really likes old school Nintendo, it looks like. I mean, this is like the sort of thing he did. I, I haven't seen him in 20 years, but this doesn't surprise me at all. That's funny. All right, well, anyway, so what this dude did is he he wrote an algorithm and, and published this paper on this computer program that basically learns to play classic Nintendo games. And his big example is Mario, uh, which if you want to skip ahead in the video, the computer first starts playing Mario at like uh, eight minutes into the video or so. And, it can, you know, it just starts like kind of randomly jumping around. Basically what it's doing is like you're giving the algorithm the contents of the Nintendo's memory. And what it's trying to generate is a sequence of button pressing states for like every basically frame of the video, I guess, or every, you know, every moment that it can accept input, you know, if it were a real Nintendo. And of course you're all doing this in, a, in an emulated Nintendo environment. And I guess what it's, what his algorithm is basically trying to do is maximize certain values in Ram, like in the case of Mario, like the value representing the world you're on and your score. And I think a couple of other things, right? Um, like your position within the world. Uh, yeah, so he has 10 things, I think. Yeah. And this is one of those... So, so this is one of those things that I don't know until I read the paper. So this is a good example of like this kind of thing. Like You can't tell exactly how cool it is, I think, until you get into the details because, you know, you could imagine over a, an extremely long period of time, you could make a genetic algorithm 
that learns to play <laughs> Mario perfectly um, in a sense, but it could be a very stupid genetic algorithm, right? Like it just could be, there is some sequel, like Mario is deterministic, right? Yep. Actually, is it, is it actually deterministic? Um, I, well, certain things are probably randomized in Mario, but all the appearances of the enemies and stuff are, are determined. Yeah. So those are all actually, maybe Mario is entirely deterministic. I think it actually might be. I mean, I think it is based on, you know, like, I mean, your actions influence things, but yeah, like where the enemies are, where the items are, are not randomized at all. So like a Goomba is not going to like randomly go back and forth. No, yeah. So the game should be the exact same every time you... Oh, you know, it might be randomized. Certain things like, um, you know, when you get to Bowser at the end of the level and he throws a bunch of like, uh, like, like when, or like when the Hammer Brothers throw hammers at you. I think when they choose to throw a hammer and when they choose to jump is randomized. But that could still be dependent on something like when they first appear on the screen. Um, so I'm not sure about that. But, or they could be totally random. This paper is amazing, by the way. It's hilarious. Uh, I'll have to, I, I can't read and, uh, talk at the same time, so I'll, I'll check it out later. But what, what is he basically saying? Um, well, it's, it's, I mean, the paper's good, but he's very upfront about sort of, uh, what parts are baked in. All right, so let me just read you an excerpt. Yep. This is a, this is set up like a pull quote in the middle. So he's talking about the, how he waits, like what the, the, what the player should do. Yep. And then there's a block and it says parameter alert. Here I choose the magic number 10 for the size of the input motifs. On a scale of gravitational constant to pulled out of my ass, this is an 8. You can perhaps justify a 10 as being close to the speed of input change possible for a human. Um, it's probably better to do, it's probably possible to do much better here, but this is one of the biggest improvements so far. Nice. So this is, uh, it's got a bit of personality for a... He sounds exactly like I remember, which is kind of weird. Also, I just learned, um, not to sidetrack, but uh, you know how in... The NES is 8 bits, which is the reason why it has 8 buttons on the controller. I mean, obviously, but that just occurred to me after 20-some-odd years of... Well, I guess it couldn't... Well, well, it could have 8 or 16, I guess. I guess it couldn't easily have... Well, it certainly makes it easier if it has 8, yeah. It also only has 2K of RAM. Yeah, the, the original NES had 2K of RAM, uh, which is kind of crazy. So, yeah, I mean, uh, what I was going to say is, like, until we, we, you know, really get into the details of the algorithm, this is a good example, but not not like what he did, because I'm sure what he did is cool in the computer science world. But, like, if you say that I've taught this computer algorithm to play Mario, there are, like, cool ways and not-so-cool ways that you could have done that, right? Like, so what I was going to say is Mario is totally deterministic, so you, there is a sequence of button presses that will get you through Mario pretty much whether or not you have any idea what you're doing, right? Like you don't have to know what you're seeing. You just have to know that like anybody that holds right and presses a, you know, at these times will beat the game eventually. Right. Yep. But yeah, that's true without knowing that you're trying to avoid the Goombas or collect the coins or right without having any abstract concept of Goombas or whatever. Yeah, and you could do this with, like, the stupid kind of genetic algorithm I outlined, uh, like, for my stimulus list, which is literally you make a long list of button states, and you just randomize them. And now, this would take, like, forever to to do, but there is some randomly generated series of button states that beats the game, and you could converge on that with, like, a genetic algorithm or something like that. But that wouldn't be... That wouldn't be very interesting in terms of like saying that you taught the algorithm to play Mario because the algorithm has no 
abstract representation of how to play Mario, right? Like it doesn't it wouldn't generalize at all. It's just a list of button presses. Uh, it's actually so the way he did this is really clever. So you have the game on the cartridge, right? Yeah. And so basically what he wants to optimize is how far you get along. So you could lay it out as sort of like a linear track, right? So right. you're at the beginning, you want to get to the end. So he basically tries to find a function that will get him from uh, the beginning of the level to, you know, where you go down the flag. Right. But So that's his objective function. He doesn't worry about, like, how many coins. He just wants to get to the end of the memory. Right. It's it's not even sort of unpacked to be like the game. It's just you know, oh, this is really cool. Yeah, I mean, thank it's you for a, bringing this to my attention. Well, no problem. But um, but I mean, I think that so that gets anyway. It gets back to this whole like what's cool about genetic algorithms, like why we go back and forth on it. I think right because like I think you know sometimes that the the result of the algorithm may look cool, like seeing a computer play Mario is cool, but you know, sort of the way that you reach it and, like, to what extent it models the way humans do it or or to what extent... I mean, it's, I think what's really cool is when an algorithm with very few um, prior constraints ends up sort of doing things the way that a real biological system would and making the same kind of mistakes we make and so forth, right? Which was what was kind of cool about the animal models which is, you know, they kind of move like real fish and stuff, right? I mean, not all of them do, but, like, a lot of them look surprisingly lifelike, right? Yep. Like, they look like animals we recognize. I, again, I'd have to look at the guy's paper and see what his constraints were, but if all you said is, like, you know, you have an animal built of any series of cubes and rectangles and so forth, and, you know, they move in a, this and that way, and the, they're on a plane with friction, and their goal is to get from here to here... You know, you wouldn't imagine that they would necessarily move anything like real animals, but they, they seem to, which is kind of neat. Yeah, so looking at the Mario thing, it seems like he often, it often plays like a real player, but it's also, you, it does these sort of zany off-the-wall things where it's found basically a bug in, in the game that it can take advantage of. Yeah, so, so one good example that he showed was the thing where, like, if you're jumping on a Goomba in Mario, normally, of course, you jump on the, the little Goomba guy. But the algorithm would frequently, like, jump up towards a Goomba that was above him. And actually, like, so apparently the way that Mario works is as long as your player is moving downward when you come into contact with a Goomba, you kill it rather than it killing you. And normally you would try to come on down to the Goomba from above. But one thing you could do is kind of jump up towards it and basically let go of the jump button right before you come in contact with it. So it is above you, but you're technically moving down. Which looks like it should kill you, but actually, like, you know, makes you kill it. And the game does that because it can do that with, like, crazy precision, but a human would never, of course, do that because 90% of the time that would kill you. Oh, that's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, well, that was good. So that was all I really wanted to say. <laughs> Did you see his Tetris one? <laughs> when the game gets sufficiently screwed in Tetris, it just pauses the game and refuses to unpause it. <laughs> that is in the YouTube video, yeah. That's, that's kind of how the YouTube video ends is... Uh, the Tetris algorithm figures out that, like, when it's screwed, it should just pause the game, and it will it will never lose. But of course, it never like gets any further either. That's it's genius. I mean, that's about like a four year old level of uh, you know of how you deal with games. No, I'm not going to lose. Yeah, exactly. Ah, uh, there's another paper on this that says generalized Super Mario Brothers is actually NP complete. What? Well, that depends on how you generalize Super Mario Brothers. 
Yeah, I should probably read the paper before we talk about that. Yeah. Well, anyway, all right. So let's 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 move on topics. Um, I have another funny science bit that I could share. Okay, sure. But let's let's try to keep them snippy, snippy, snappy. Oh, this this is quite short. Okay. Uh, and related to our so uh, <laughs> building on my stupid extinct animals from last time, I just saw another report where uh, they were doing a survey of the number of uh, chameleons in oh, I think yeah. it was Australia to see if they were because you know some of the species are endangered. They would need to count them to figure out how many are left and you know how much money they should devote to saving them. Right. And it turns out that some of the previous chameleon surveys vastly undercounted the number of chameleons because they didn't see them. <laughs> I, that was going to be the joke that I was going to make, and, and it was made for me by reality. So if you work in conservation biology and study an animal which can change its shape, or change its appearance, you may want to keep that in mind. Nice. That's pretty great. Comma, 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 chameleon. You're silenting quite a bit. Can we disconnect Skype and reconnect and see if that makes life any better? All right. All right. Talk to you in a second. Come and go. You come and go. Love will be easier because you like my dreams. Red, golden, green. Red, golden, green. So thank you for that. Now I'm singing Karma Chameleon to myself. We should explain the joke that many people think it's Karma Chameleon. And I thought this would be an awesome Sesame Street character, but someone has beat me to the punch. Okay, was that so? I didn't actually watch the video, but somebody made a video about comma chameleon. Well, it's it's a chameleon shaped like a comma, and then he appears and changes color and disappears in time with the song. Okay, oh. I I think it was a good thought. Like I said on on Facebook, uh, I have a set of things that for some reason I like to make jokes about, uh, and that is one of those things is is the song Karma Chameleon. So I made a long series of jokes about. Uh, Karma Chameleon on Twitter already, but I had not come across the Karma Chameleon connection. I think the only joke I I didn't mention already on your Facebook wall was the uh, I tweeted once. Few people know that uh, the one of the Karma Chameleon's natural defenses is that it can disguise itself as merely a run of bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. Yeah, it's a Karma Chameleon. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. segueing slightly, do you know any of this research about what makes songs earwormy? I always see it like, you know, on the BBC, but I can never tell if it's... Well, so this actually segues very nicely into what we promised to talk about like two episodes ago, um, which is the screenplay algorithm. I mean, I know that they have developed a set of pretty good algorithms for music, actually, that determine what people like, um, to the extent that they are using these in, in pop music making to some extent these days, but I don't know the details, really. Is it just like, you know, people like... A fairly steady beat, uh, like a certain number of beats per minute, or is it more like, you know, this is a terrible amateur violin con- uh, composition and this is Beethoven? Well, so um, have you read, um, I can't remember which Malcolm Gladwell book it is, but have you read any of them? No. Yeah, so actually, um, there are two pop science books that I will cite here, uh, neither of which I will recommend that our listeners immediately run out and buy. One of them is called This Is Your Brain on Music by Dan Levitin. Do you know this guy at all? He, I, yes. he might actually be at McGill. Uh, he is. I've never met him. 
Yeah, so I, I read his, uh, I think I got uh, his book for Christmas or something uh, called This Is Your Brain on Music, and uh, it's a pop psychology book about this kind of thing, like what, how how music works in the brain, and I was personally not super impressed by it. No offense to Dan Levitin if he's listening. Uh, I, we would love to have you on the podcast to defend your position, but uh, a lot of it was stuff that seemed pretty obvious to me. Um, I think part of it is he started out, I believe, as a music guy and then transitioned to psychology and neuroscience later in life. So to me, at least, the book felt a little light on neuroscience and psychology and kind of heavy on like music theory, which is fine, but like not that interesting from a brain perspective. So he, he spent a lot of time talking about things like this. And also um, there's, there was an actually a pretty interesting chapter in um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, one of them, I think it was Blink, but uh, I'm not totally sure, about a musician named Kenna. Have you ever listened to Kenna? No. K-E-N-N-A? K-E-N-N-A. Look up the song on YouTube, Free Time by Kenna. Uh, and actually, maybe while I'm monologuing, you can be listening to the song, and you can tell me whether or not you like it. Okay. Actually, maybe we'll just both have a pause while you listen to this and tell me if you like it or not. I'm waiting for it to load. I have to watch the ad like a savage. <laughs> you poor thing. Have you got the video up now? Yep. All right. So listen along. Let me know what you think. You don't have to listen to the whole song, by the way. If <laughs> Hold on. I'm doing an experiment. Okay. Okay. Uh, I've, I've listened to enough. Okay. So what are, what are your thoughts? Or what is the result? What was your experiment? Well, so I, I enjoyed the first, I, I listened to about 90 seconds of it, and I enjoyed, I, it was okay when I was watching the video, but the yeah. song itself is pretty lackluster. Okay, interesting. So I imagine where you're going with this is that the song has been somehow optimized so that I will, I will love it. Well, not exactly, actually. So um, this was, because uh, it's a little bit older than these algorithms. I think it's about eight years old now or something like that. Um, no, oh, 2003, you're right. Uh, 10 years old now. So, yeah, this is before stuff got too algorithmic. So this guy was actually kind of an indie guy. Uh, so in this chapter in what I believe is Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, basically the story of this dude is he was discovered by some A&R, you know, record producer guy or record industry guy. And, you know, they shopped this single of his around the the music industry. And a bunch of the music industry people that listened to it, I think one of them was like Michael Stipe or, or someone in REM, you know, a bunch of music professionals were like, this guy is going to be huge. The song is great. Um, we all really like it. And it didn't really do anything when they actually released it. Uh, you know, it kind of didn't do very well. And again, I'm, I haven't read this story in a long time, so I probably got some of the details wrong. No, that's basically what the Wikipedia article says, too. Okay, good. So... The interest, so what Malcolm Gladwell claimed or thinks is the case is that this is a case where people with a lot of experience listening to a lot of music picked up on something that they liked about this song and sort of regular people did not. Now, again, this is like, cause, so you didn't like it all that much. And of course, there's many other factors that go into this, you know, like personal style of music and so forth. I really liked it myself when I first heard it, but again, I was a little biased because I heard about it through the article, so there was some uh, incentive to make myself feel smart or, you know, like a member of the music industry by liking it. But anyway, 
this would go along well with what I seem to remember from Dan Levitin's book and what's kind of common sense, which is that um, it seems like there's kind of, um, it's sort of an inverse uncanny valley uh, that we like about music and, and art and things like that in general. So you want to explain the Uncanny Valley briefly so that I can continue my analogy for people that have heard of the Uncanny Valley? Okay. So uh, the Uncanny Valley uh, is a term that comes from, I guess, mostly computer animation or computer vision. Yeah. So the idea is that, you know, if you have a very cartoony face, it looks like a cartoon. It's not realistic. But, you know, you look at it and you're like, oh, that's cute. It's, it's Pokemon or uh, Pikachu or, I don't know, Bugs Bunny or something cute. Yeah. Charlie Brown, Garfield, whatever. Yeah. Charlie Brown. Yeah, Charlie Brown's a good example. So he doesn't look like... Charlie Brown, because they're all humans, yeah. He doesn't look like a photograph of a human. Uh, but you know he's human, and you look at him and you're like, oh, that's, that's a cute kid. Yeah. So, you know, back in the day, that's about as best as, the best you can do, uh, sort of graphically. Yeah. But as sort of, we've gotten better at uh, rendering and animating, you can make a, a picture that looks more and more like a human. And people are like, oh, that looks better and better and better. Yep. Uh, but there's this weird phenomenon where when you get close, but not quite... It looks awful. Um, so yeah. the sort of, I guess the, the most horrible example of this recently was uh, the Polar Express movie. Yep, that's kind of the classic example where Tom Hanks is a, uh, where Tom Hanks is this animated uh, train conductor, and it's just it's just freaky. So like, it looks very much like a person. And they kind of like rotoscoped like real faces or something onto the animated faces, right? Or they did something like that that didn't kind of work out very well. No, I thought it was all... Maybe it was all completely animated. I uh, can't remember. They did use some, like, new technique, I think. Yeah. Oh, no, you're right. Sorry. It was animated from uh, motion capture. Oh, okay. That's what it was. So it was motion captured, but fully animated. It wasn't, like, drawn on top of actual video. Okay. But the faces, they look just terrifying. There's, you can't, like, pin it on them. You're not like, oh, well, the, the mouth is is the wrong size, or, you know, it doesn't move quite right. It's just like, ooh, it's... Looks like a like a zombie mannequin fiasco, right? It, there's something kind of, I mean, different people feel it to a different to different degrees, but uh, you know, I don't find them that bothersome in the Polar Express, but you know, some people really were creeped out by them. Yeah, yeah, and and so so this sort of dip because you know the actual Tom Hanks is, is an attractive human being and people like to look at him, but right. this sort of very close rendering of Tom Hanks is bad and the sort of cartoony Tom Hanks you'd be okay with. So this dip uh, people call the uncanny valley. Right. And I guess the idea here is with faces, this sort of makes sense, I guess, because like, you know, it makes sense that we would like pictures of humans, you know, just because like we are humans, we like humans. We, you know, we look at them quite a bit for information and to look for attractive ones to seek mates and stuff. And we have no problem with like the idea of schematic representations but there is yeah there's something kind of weird and I, I don't know what the actual theory behind it is really but there's something kind of weird and soulless and dead about things that are almost human-like but not quite it's like it, it lacks the i don't know it's, it's sort of like we can fill in all that stuff if something is clearly fake and animated or, or you know just a drawing but if it's if it's nearly a true representation, now I'm looking at videos on YouTube of Uncanny Valleys and they're all horribly creepy. Is there Uncanny Valley for things other than like, ah, so you get it with macaques too. That's awesome. Oh, that's interesting. Well, this is, I remember there was a time when I got really into the Uncanny Valley and I was trying to like 
come up with situations where it uh, generalizes you know, to other things. But the problem is actually what I was getting to with the music stuff is it's sort of the opposite in a way with music. So like, so, you know, with faces, we really like what we're used to seeing, which is regular human faces in the real world. We're okay with something that's very far away from that, which is a schematic representation of a face that doesn't look very lifelike at all. Um, and it's the thing that's right next to a face, but not quite that bothers us. And, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, we don't like real life people look sufficiently weird you know it can be kind of off-putting and you know what i mean no no offense to those fine people but like can be somewhat off-putting in a way right but with music preferences and things like that it seems to kind of be the inverse so like if something sounds exactly like everything else you've already heard before you kind of don't like it right it's boring yeah well i don't know i mean nickelback is fantastically successful well in a way they make money hand over fist. I mean, everyone claims to hate them, but someone's paying them. Yeah, well... And when I find out who... Yeah, exactly. You're in Canada now, so you can uh, go undercover and find out. Oh, God, it's awful. So, uh, by law, they have to play a certain amount of Canadian music. Oh, really? Radio. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So a lot of Bare Naked Ladies, uh, Avril Lavigne, and Nickelback, huh? Oh, and Rush. Yeah, I mean, there's some decent Canadian music. I would listen to Bare Naked Ladies. They could fulfill their year's requirement with, like, three Rush songs. Well, anyway. Yeah, I don't know if it's per song or per, like, minute. Well, yeah, let's hope it's by by music minute, not by song, because otherwise, yeah, Rush is not very uh, efficient. Uh, anyway, so, ooh, new pornographers are good. So, that's, that's a point in their favor. Anyway, uh, but the idea, at least, is, like, if you see a movie or listen to music or whatever that's, like, too similar to everything you've always seen before, whoever you, in this case, is, you're not going to like it because you're like, well, this is boring, I've seen this before, I've heard this before, etc., right? Right. <clears throat> like, familiarity breeds contempt. And if you see something that's, or hear something that's, like, totally weird, like, you know, for most people, like, really weird experimental music, you know, really uh, experimental filmmaking... You don't like that either, right? Because it's too strange. It doesn't fit in your experience. It doesn't sound like what music should sound like to you, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd buy that. But you you like something that's just kind of outside the bounds of of your experience in the sense of, like, it just is different enough to kind of pique your interest, right? So, like, you tend... I think what what Dan Levitin says in the book and what I would say is kind of common sense is that you like things that surprise you a little. Like, they fit into your existing context, but then they throw, like, a little surprise your way, and you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that, but it makes sense. It's almost like, it's like a joke, right? Where, like, there's a setup, but there's a little surprise in there that is what's interesting, right? Because you're familiar with the setup to an extent, but your prediction is off just a little bit. Not enough to be, like, you know, completely thrown off, like you would if you were just listening to a series of random tones, which would be unpleasant. But, but just enough that like things basically make sense to your existing mental context, and you know you get nice little surprises here and there, right? Yeah. So, you know, the tricky thing is, of course, like obviously people have different musical tastes. But I think that's not a music-specific thing, right? I think you mostly like you like that with food too, right? You know, this is sort of. Well, exactly. Right. Like you wouldn't, right. You don't want to eat something that's totally weird, but you know, you add like a little paprika to your macaroni and cheese or something and you're like, oh, that's nice. 
That actually is delicious. I just had that the other day. Oh, really? I sort of picked a random spice. I wasn't sure what paprika. No, it, lo- it looks nice. It's, it's good. Get, get the smoked one. Okay. So good example. Yeah. Right. So it's like, oh, mac and cheese is good, but mac and cheese with a little something extra is even better. Uh, oh, did it, you know this trick? Craft uh, dinner, as it's called, I guess, where you are now, with a, li- with a little bit of maple syrup. Have you tried that? No, but that sounds so, so stereotypical. Uh, well, I actually, I don't know if she was Canadian, but I heard this from a woman that that was her pregnancy craving on like the radio or TV or something. And it sounded gross to me, but I did have to try it. And it was pretty good, actually. Um, if you like the, if you're a person that likes sweet and savory combined, I don't know if you are. Yeah, I'll have to give that a shot. I have a lot of maple syrup. Ironically, maple syrup imported from the United States. (laughs) That's funny. My, my uncle harvested it. So, you know, it's not like a. Not like I'm spiting the Canadian maple cartel. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I only eat American maple syrup. The trees, you know, 45 minutes across the border are just so much better. Yeah. So I have another sort of related theory to ask you about. Okay. Which maybe is why I didn't like free time as much as I could have. Okay. Is there a term for when... All right. So have you watched something like The Matrix recently? Uh, Recently enough. Did it seem weird to you? I don't think so. I mean, although it has been a couple of years, so I haven't watched it like that recently. So I, I caught a little bit of it on TV over Christmas, and it seemed like almost cliched, uh, yeah. which in a sense it is because, you know, like dozens of even like B-rate movies, heck, even one of our skits had like a fake bullet time effect in it. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's weird because, you know, it comes from The Matrix. Right. You know, I know what you mean. Um, there is that – I'm trying to think of a good example – um, but I, I have the same thing where things that define a genre or a, a new thing, yeah, like it's hard to kind of appreciate them. Like in their context? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is some things more and some things less, right? So like a good example is the Beatles music, right? Like it's really good, uh, I think, by most people's judgment. But it's so in our culture that it's hard to hear with fresh ears, that's true. It's never felt like sort of revolutionary to me because that's sort of what pop music has always been like. Right. But I'm sure that wasn't true if you were alive in like 1945 or something. Well, yeah, I, I guess even a better example, right, is like uh, – so you and I shared a very tender 4th of July together where none of our friends wanted to join us watching Chuck Berry play in an uh, uh, Independence Day celebration in Meriden, Connecticut. That was awesome and you all missed out by the way. Oh, yeah. It was, it was cool but like I don't know if you felt this way. I, I like Chuck Berry's stuff. But I don't think I like Chuck Berry in the way that people in 1958 like Chuck Berry. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's true. He doesn't feel like – like you know he's something special, but you don't hear the song. You're like, wow, how did he come up with that? Well, and that's what makes you know the classic Back to the Future moment where like he calls, hey, Chuck, it's your cousin Marvin. Marvin Berry. You know, like there's this new sound all of a sudden. And of course to us it's a very old sound. And you're like, well, that's just a bunch of the same kind of R&B, you know – Chord progression over and over again with slightly different variations. But back then, that was like super new, right? I just realized that for most of us, that may have been our first exposure to Chuck Berry, too. Was Back to the Future? Yeah, I I watched Back to the Future Future so much as like an eight-year-old. So that may have been the first time I ever heard Johnny Be Good. And like much of Back to the Future, I had no idea why it was funny or whatever at the time as a kid. Because I didn't know what the 50s were like uh, as a child. No one was alive then. Yeah, no, well, I certainly wasn't. Uh, my parents barely were, I guess, right? So, yeah, 
Mine too. Yeah, but, um, you, you know, yeah, we've been growing up. We've heard that boogie-woogie kind of chord progression our whole lives. So it, it does sound like weirdly quaint. But other things seem to kind of... Um, it's interesting because some things kind of transcend it. Actually, I've got a great example. This is a good example. I only recently, and I know this like revokes my man card to say this. I only recently saw Die Hard, the movie, for the first what? time. I know. Did you, I know. Did you not have sleepovers in like fifth or sixth grade? I, you know, we did, but I, I think we weren't allowed. You know, like I did not with the kids that had the parents that let you watch R-rated movies when you weren't supposed to. Uh, Scott Sell and I watched that and ate pizza so many times. Yeah, I needed a kid with more, a friend with more permissive parents. But uh, yeah, so that's a good example. Like, have you watched Die Hard recently? No, to be honest. But I could go for some pizza too. <laughs> well, that's a good example of like, it's interesting coming to it as an adult because I didn't like it at first. For like the first hour of it, I was like, uh, this is, I don't know, this is just kind of like another action movie. But as I watched more and more of it, I was like, okay, well, this is actually a really good action movie. And as I was getting through it, I, it suddenly came to me. I was like, this is probably about the first action movie of its particular type that I can, that I'm aware of. Like, this is the one that invented all like of all the, the cliches. Yeah. So, I mean, all the things, yeah, that eventually became tropes and cliches. And I was like, okay, I, on that context, I can, I, I see why I like this better now. And by the end, I liked it pretty well. Um, but it took me some time to sort of process that, you know, in its time, it was actually like original and well written, and you know these cliches weren't just cliches, which, which I think kind of feeds in anyway to the point that I was going to make is that you know obviously the problem with um, trying to engineer music and movies and stuff to people's expectations is that everyone's going to have a different experience a and probably b different people are going to be tuned naturally to like some people might have like a slightly wider range that they tend to like. You know, some people might like a little bit more expectation violation than others, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I can tell you, like, exactly, you know, I like probably a little bit more than the average person, but less, like, I like, you know, movies like uh, like Truman Show or like Eternal Sunshine of the Sun Spotless Mind or like uh, Being John Malkovich or something like that, that, you know what I mean, have like kind of a magical realism quality to them. But yeah. aren't, like weird experimental cinema, like I can't get into. Um, I mean, there's like, well, I would say, okay, here's a good example. Like, I liked Mulholland Drive quite a bit, but I would not get into like Eraserhead, you know, like David Lynch's weirder stuff, you know. But of course, some people, you know, the what you would call the unwashed masses, I think, have a much, like, you know, some people that are really into super indie experimental stuff have a wider kind of tuning curve for weirdness than I do. But, you know, the unwashed masses probably have a much narrower tuning curve, right? So, like, I can't watch, like, an action movie that's exactly like every other action movie, but clearly a lot of people can, right? And I think your tuning's probably fairly similar to mine. I don't know. Yeah, like, I think, remember we saw Of Montreal? That was sort of the edge of yeah. things I enjoy versus things that are just, like, slightly too far afield for me. That That's a good example. I That's also for me, too. Like, I almost want to like Of Montreal, and there's some other stuff that I do in fact like, but overall they're like, they go slightly too far for me. But anyway, all of that said, so like it, it's tricky because and all of that's going to change, of course, with the context, right? Like what, what is a cliche to us now? Uh, well, another great example, right? Uh, is fight club. 
Like if if you made another Fight Club today, it would be like the most horribly cliched movie. Well, not the most horribly cliched movie, but like you just mean like an unreliable narrator movie. Well, uh, if you remember, I don't know if you do because this was very iconic to me because they both came out in the uh, fall of my freshman year of college. And I got to see them both actually slightly before they're released in theaters due to uh, connections in the Yale Film Society. Um, but but both American Beauty and um, Fight Club came out in like fall of 1999. And they both had that kind of twist ending, unreliable, well, not totally unreliable narrator in the case of uh, American Beauty. But like this kind of, I don't know, this new, ironic, um, self-aware style of filmmaking that sort of typified then like a lot of movies of the 2000s, right? You got a lot more stuff like that shortly thereafter, right? Yep. No, that's true. But you know what I mean? Now those, like, I don't know if you've seen American Beauty recently. I, that's one that I have caught again fairly recently. And I really loved it when I first saw it. And now it does feel almost cliched because I think partly because it's a little more earnest now that we've all gotten even more ironic, it's a little on the on the earnest side, but uh, it also just is is because like it started that trend, I think, in the two thousands of these kind of quirky, ironic, twist endingy. You know, it's almost a little too cute in its in its twist ending and so forth. But it wasn't at the time, right? Like it, you know, it was legitimately surprising at the time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, where were we where were we going with this? Oh, uh, the screenplay prediction thing. Oh, what I was going to say. Well, go ahead. You, why don't you outline the screenplay prediction? I can tie this back to music again, but why don't you go ahead and talk about the screenplay algorithm thing? So this was actually the, the genesis for the podcast. Uh, we were talking about there is a thing in the New York Times where there is this guy announced that he has a new company and it will take your screenplay and it will analyze it using his magic formula and it will tell you whether or not the screenplay is going to be like incredibly successful or uh, a flop. And this actually ties back to the genetic algorithms we were talking about earlier, and that he claims to use sort of sophisticated techniques like that. But it seems like it's all sort of baked into how you do the analysis. So this guy right. claims, for example, that if you have bowling in your movie, it's going to do worse than movies which contain other sports. Right. Um, and, and I'm not really clear. I don't know. So I read the... You all right there? Yep. <laughs> I'm just so repulsed by this article. Um, so I didn't read beyond what it was, the New York Times article or whatever. But I mean, so my gathering is that the difference is he's not doing like, he's not telling the computer to analyze, like, like feeding in a, a film script to a computer program and having it spit out like numbers. It sounds like he is, he's using like some sort of statistical model, but using kind of human defined factors. Like, you know, a human reads the script and says, this is a bowling scene. Let me feed bowling scene into my, into my predicting prediction algorithm and see how bowling scenes, you know, correlate with, with box office receipts. Yeah. Well, my impression, or at least the impression that I think he was trying to give you was that it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Which I mean, clearly you're not going to say, please give us a million dollars so that I can give you my hunch about this. Well, I mean, I think he's using statistics, but I don't think he's, in other words, I think the human is the one like deciding on what the primitive elements of the script are that. Oh, for sure. It's not done like, from first principles. Right. So the human like puts in a bunch of characteristics about the screenplay. And then like, there's some big database of movies that it correlates those characteristics with and spits out a prediction of, you know, 
how it how it relates to successful and unsuccessful movies on all those characteristics. Yeah, I would actually be curious to see that. I think I think you could probably do this in an interesting way. But my impression from the New York Times article is that this was not it. It didn't seem to be, right? Um, so the the specific examples that they mentioned in the article were the one about the bowling scenes. Uh, there was one about, it was interesting. This is one that I'm a little bit more curious about is that if you've got a horror movie and you've got some kind of demon, uh, demon in the horror movie, he says that the demons can be, uh, they can target people, I guess, without being provoked, or they can be summoned somehow. And you have higher opening weekend sales if it's a targeting demon than if it's summoned. So you should get rid of the Ouija board scene and, you know, have it just be a random, you know, attack by a demon for no good reason, I guess. Yeah, part of me also wonders, like, these things are so specific. It must be super sparse. Well, yeah, part of it, I think, is one problem is that there's a very small sample size, right? And I don't know, like, prediction is yeah, prediction is imperfect, especially in pop culture, right? Because, like, again, you don't want to do exactly what everyone did before because it's formulaic, right? And th this is one problem, right, is that if you really were using an algorithm to do this, the algorithm would suggest basically the uh, if you wanted the optimal box office receipts, the algorithm would or the or the statistics would suggest that you do exactly the same formula every time, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, well, in the sense of like, you know what I mean? Like, if you for every binary choice you have to make in a movie, like, should it you know, let's say you want to make the most money, which is what he claims to be able to help you do, you know, if you say like, well, let's see. Should I make an action movie or should I make a romantic comedy? Like the algorithm would say, make an action movie. Those make more money than romantic comedies, which is true, right? But you can't make all action movies. And, you know, then you go, you, you choose what type of superhero. He says, you know, a cursed superhero never sells as well as a guardian superhero. I'm not sure exactly what that means. More of these alternative ones like Hellboy or something like that versus like Superman. Okay. Or like Van Wilder. Not Van Wilder. Van Wilder. <laughs> Van, I was going to say Van Wilder, a superhero in his own way, but uh, Van Helsing. His supernatural powers were mostly like how to make shirts fly off. Actually, did you ever see that Scott Bayo movie where that was his superpower? No. Should we run it through the algorithm? This is I, I love talking about this movie. Um, what was it called? Oh, it's, it was called Zapped. Have you ever seen Zapped? No. This was a fantastic. This was, used to be on. So this goes back a ways, but. Um, Comedy Central, if you can remember the dark early days of Comedy Central when they only had the rights to like six things, which was like Kids in the Hall reruns, absolutely fabulous reruns, uh, UK, Whose Line Is It Anyway reruns, and like a bunch of bad movies. Um, you know, they were run the same things over and over again, but one of their features was something they called the TNA matinee. <laughs> was it actually called that? Yeah, they called it the TNA matinee. As, this was about when I was 14, which was when I was in the ideal demographic uh, for the TNA matinee, both comedically and in other ways. Not that I'm completely out of that demographic yet. <laughs> but they would show a bunch of like bad sort of like 80s movies, uh, you know, with a, like not, you know, not like softcore porn, but like, you know, gratuitous, like Porky's style movies with like just enough gratuitous boobage, you know, like uh, what, you know, like Harold and Kumar would be kind of in that same genre nowadays. Uh, but maybe slightly better executed. But anyway, there was one called Zapped, and the, the premise of Zapped is that Scott Bayo gets these telekinetic powers. But I often say that it's one of the most realistic superpower movies of all time, because if I recall correctly, the uh, 
the denouement of Zapped and several points along the, the middle of the movie involve him using his telekinetic powers, and he's like a high school student this time, to make girls' blouses pop open and people's clothes fly off and everything. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably what a typical 16-year-old kid would do if he got telekinetic powers, is use them mostly to see boobs. It's true. That would make heroes, well, everything would make heroes better at this point. Oh, the show Heroes, you mean? Yeah. What, if it's for more telekinetic uh, stripping? Yeah, you know. Yeah. It certainly couldn't be worse than what they did to the plot after the first season. Well, yeah. So I had another thought about the movie thing, actually, that I wonder if the causality is all backwards. Like, if you're a broke, if you're making sort of a broke, low-budget screenplay, it's, like, way easier to film in a bowling alley than it is to film at Yankee Stadium. Well, that, yeah, that's one aspect of it, I think. Like, I think a lot of those choices are sort of budget-driven. That is probably true. I, I was going at it a different way, which is, like, think about the kinds of movies. I mean, I can think of The Big Lebowski and uh, Kingpin as movies that have bowling scenes. I can't. Can you think of any others off the top of your head? I mean, those are bowling, heavily bowling-related movies. Yeah, but The Big Lebowski was not a theatrical success. No, and neither was Kingpin, although Kingpin is, I think, the Farrelly Brothers' uh, best work. I've never actually seen that. Oh, it's a great movie. You should see that. Before or after I see Zapped? Uh, I'd say before. Uh, similarly juvenile sense of humor, but, uh, but better done. By the way, this actually segues into a classic problem that I... Have I posed this problem to you before? I only mentioned it because we happen to have perfectly mentioned these same three se- these same sets of people on this podcast. Does it involve cookies? No. This is a, this is just a thought problem, uh, kind of like your well, it is kind of like your cookie problem, because there's three choices, and you could pose this in different ways. But you know the Wachowski brothers who made the Matrix, right? Yes. Well, no longer brothers, right? Wait, what? Didn't one of them uh, change genders? Yeah. Maybe so. I don't remember. But at the time they made the Matrix, they were the Wachowski brothers. Um, then you've got the Cohen brothers who made the Big Lebowski. And you've got the Farrelly brothers who made uh, Kingpin and Me, Myself, and Irene and a bunch of other kind of dumb comedies, right? So my question to you is, if you take these three pairs of brothers who make movies and you recombine them, so you have one pair that's a Wachowski brother and a Cohen brother, one pair that's a Wachowski brother and a Farrelly brother, and one pair that's a Cohen brother and a Farrelly brother. Which one do I eat? Which one do I put in my pocket? Well, which movie do you want to see and what do you think they would all make, basically? I don't have a real answer to it. I just think it would be an interesting question. I mean, Wachowski plus Cohen wouldn't actually be... I think it would just be with better action scenes. You know, the, the wood chipper would explode. You'd get something between... I'm trying to think, like, what's the most action-y of the Cohen Brothers movies. I guess you would get something somewhere between... Like a more sci-fi version of like No Country for Old Men or something like that. I feel like that could work actually. Like yeah. No Space Station for Old Men. I think that one would be the one that would like be critically. I mean, obviously that would be the critically acclaimed one, but I could see that one working really well. I think Wachowski plus Farley would just be too slapsticky. I well, yeah, because the Wachowskis were also responsible for the terrible Speed Racer movie, right? So I think those two sensibilities excesses combined would be terrible. <laughs> Yeah, and then I think Cohen plus Farrelly might actually be pretty good, too, if you let the Cohen brother get a little bit sillier and the Farrelly brother get a little bit, like, more high concept. Yeah, that could end up as nothing special, but, like, you know, a solid three and a half stars. Yeah, it could be a good, like, middle-brow comedy, I think. Anyway, 
someday, you know, when I have tons of time, I'm going to sit down and write treatments for what all these, what they would all come out with. But uh, I don't have any formal idea of what the plots would be. But yeah, we had we had played that game before, I think. Okay. Anyway, um, but bowling scenes tend to occur in kind of it's a comedic setting, right? Yeah. Uh, Larry Wachowski is now Lana Wachowski, and they've oh. just changed their. Uh, ensemble to be the Wachowskis. Interesting. All right. Well, good for good for her, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, but yeah, bowling scenes like you wouldn't have a bowling scene in the Dark Knight, right? Probably not. I'm trying to imagine Batman getting like pissed and just using his, you know, gadgets to knock all the pins down. Yeah, it would be a very yeah, it would be a very special type of uh, big budget. But I don't think you'd have. Well, you wouldn't have any sports scenes there, though. In a superhero movie? Yeah. And if so, it would be bigger sports. Like, you know, there was a scene in The Dark Knight Rises in a football stadium. Uh, you know, there are big budget football and baseball movies that make a lot of money. Yeah. Anyway, but, you know, bowling is kind of an everyday activity that you generally associate with middle budget comedies that do middle budget box office, right? Yeah, I guess what I was saying is I don't know if it's if it's because it's cheap that it goes into cheaper movies. Well... I think they're all kind of cross-correlated, right? Yeah, and this model doesn't really deal with that. Well, and there's also the converse, which is, you know, you could say like, hey, we've noticed that uh, movies that have planes that are about to crash do really well in the box office. You should add that into your Coen Brothers movie. Like, that doesn't make any sense either, right? Because obviously, movies that have scenes with crashing planes are big-budget action movies, and those tend to do well because, you know, if they're executed well, they make a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, there is a very kind of facile way to go about this. And maybe his algorithm is better than that. But it, from the way it's described in the popular press, it doesn't seem to be that way, right? No, it really seems to be like just a way of him codifying his already sort of thoughts about movies. Like my impression from the interview was that the bowling feature did not just like emerge from the data in the same way that like the classic uh, data mining win of having either diapers or beer be on sale or be on sale together. I have never heard that. And now can you elaborate? Please? Oh, so this is like the classic data mining success story. Okay. That you want to put uh, beer and diapers uh, together and have one of them on sale at the supermarket because like dads will come by and they'll be like, well, since I'm being such a good dad uh, and picking up these, you know, 500 pampers for my child who's pooping everywhere, I might as well grab a <laughs> six pack so I can right. you know, kick back after that. Yeah, this is one of the, like, the classic machine learning... Uh, Interesting. Like, look what we can do for your business. So the idea is, uh, if they're, if neither of them's on sale, there's just, you know, no one will buy anything they don't really need. If both of them are on sale, it's unnecessary. But if just one of them is on sale, it's enough to make people buy both? Yeah, I guess. I don't know if on sale, or they should be near each other, or, you know. Okay. But basically, you want to cross-promote beer and diapers, even though they're not two items that you would think... Type, right, type they, have, they have nothing really to do with each other. Interesting. Yes, if, if it turned out that somehow magically they had run some giant algorithm on every movie ever made and found out there's something about bowling scenes specifically controlling for every other feature of the movie that makes movies just tank horribly, like people subliminally hate to watch bowling on film, that would be one thing. But the sample size of all the number... A movie, like we could only think of two that heavily featured bowling scenes. I'm sure there's more, but ah, 
Bowling movies. A list of movies about bowling. It only okay. has The Big Lebowski and Kingpin. <laughs> nice. Thank you, sportsinmovies.com. Yeah, so Wikipedia has a list of bowling films, which uh, has a few more, and the rest of them are actually about bowling. Okay, well, there's Bowling for Columbine, which I had forgotten about, but not really No, that's not movie. on the list. I mean, that's more of a metaphorical bowling. The Flintstones. Okay, fine. Uh, 710 Split. The Alley Cats Strike. These movies actually all look... Tara Reid is in this? There Will Be Blood. I forgot about that one. That, but that's a pretty... You know, that one did all right. But yeah, I mean, I don't think you can really make a generalization in, in that example. So the list that I came upon... Top 10 bowling scenes in movies. The Contender, Bowling for Columbine, The Flintstones, Constantine, Kingpin, My Name is Joe, which I've never even heard of, Mystery Men, uh, There Will Be Blood, Lars and the Real Girl, and The Big Lebowski. Now, granted, based on that, you know, I wouldn't say that that is a set of movies that is associated with big box office receipts, but I don't know that the bowling has anything to do with it, right? Although, I mean, There Will Be Blood was pretty successful. It was pretty successful. That was pretty much, I mean, some of them were real stinkers. Uh, I guess the Flintstones actually did all right because they made a sequel. But imagine you picked some other random thing, like totally at random, like having a, a six-foot blonde in a movie. I would yeah. imagine that, you know, about one in ten movies just, or about nine in ten movies just sort of suck. Well, I mean, yes, I don't know what the statistical breakdown is of, like, what percentage of movies make good money and what, you know, lose money and what just do okay. But yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that are going to be very common across all of them. I don't know. I mean, I guess the question is, is whether or not this guy's method does it well, is there a way to do it well? You know what I mean? Well, it's also a dynamic problem, right? In what way? That once you make, like, the best movie according to his algorithm, it is no longer the best movie. Well, that's sort of what I was, I guess, getting at is like, yes, if you're basing it entirely on the past, it's going to, the algorithm is going to want to make a movie, you know, the algorithm is going to kind of want to converge towards saying like, I want to make the Avengers again, basically. That's that's not to say it's impossible to do, right? I mean, there are lots of strategies for hitting things that are moving targets, but. Well, I think what would be more interesting to me, I think, is if you could do the screenplay analysis at um, a different a different level, right? The the place that was more intriguing to me was he did say like, uh, I don't necessarily agree with this as being the way to do it, but he said something about like, oh, this might work better if the if this character has a sidekick or something like that. And still that I think is a little high level, but it would be interesting if you did have an algorithm that like sort of figured out like, oh, you need to make these characters more sympathetic and improve the pacing here. You know, if you had an algorithm to do things like tweak the pacing, right? Like, we all have a sense of what good pacing is, but that can actually be hard to achieve, right? Because a lot of movies drag or sometimes go too fast or whatever. That would be cool if you had an algorithm that could do that, but that, I think, is way beyond what we can do. Yeah. Well, especially because the pacing, you want to sort of manipulate for effect. You know, sometimes you want it to be sort of uh, frenetic, and other times you want it to be... And other times you want to sort of kick back and... Yeah. Well, I mean, that could be something, though, that... Now, you know, maybe that's something his algorithm could do, but that would be something that I would think would be really interesting is if you analyzed a bunch of movies and found out that, like, 
all action movies essentially share like this pacing strategy, right? Like, like short scene, short scene, longer scene, short scene, medium scene, you know, or whatever. Um, that a certain like probability of short, medium, and long type scenes, you know, in a certain type of sequence is the best pacing. That would be kind of interesting to me. But I don't get a sense that that's what they're doing here. No. I, I get a sense that they're saying, like, people like movies with dogs. You should give the hero a dog. Yeah, that, that, was, that was basically the, the upshot of the article, right? That he's going to... Which is what, what's funny is, like, that's exactly what everyone who works in the movie industry complains about movie executives, is they'll say things like that. Like, you'll give them this, like, really kind of intellectual drama and they'll be like we were looking for something more like a family comedy about hamsters and you're like well we could we could add some hamsters to that you know highly metaphysical drama you know and it mutates into something it never was you know it sounds like very hollywood executive-esque advice that this quote-unquote algorithm or statistical analysis is coming up with yeah that's i guess that's sort of why i have this repulsion towards it i think you could do it right but i think this guy is basically making money yeah. because he's telling the execs exactly what they want to hear, but he's found yeah. a way so that he can stick some, uh, some charts in it and maybe throw some scientific yeah. looking P values. I agree. I mean, you know, maybe we'll be wrong, but I, you know, what's interesting is, so getting back to the music point, you can do it a bit better with music, right? Cause a, a song is short and a, a song is more mathematical, right? Like when you're writing a like hip hop song, it doesn't really matter what the lyrics are too much. Like these algorithms that generate hit pop songs, you know, they don't generate the words. They just generate like the beats and the melodies and such. Um, yeah. Well, that's like the right level of abstraction. I mean, that's something that you can actually kind of do with like with sort of a mid-level of human interaction, right? Like the human has to sort of start off by saying like, well, you have this set of instruments to work with. Like you don't want the algorithm to just generate a bunch of random sound waves because it would take a million years to find the random sound wave that a human likes. But if you tell it basic things like... No, it's got some knobs, right? You can have this many... Do you want, you know, between 60 and 200 beats a minute? Do you want... Right. Uh, like, you have this type of notes available to you. Do you want, like, a four-on-the-floor rhythm? Or do you want, like, you know, some weird syncopated thing? Right. And, I mean, the algorithm can do that pretty well. But it's, you know... It's still... Well, I guess... Have you ever, uh, do you use Pandora much? Uh, no, it, the app doesn't work in Canada. Oh, that's a bummer. But you have used it before. In, but I in use Groove Shark for the same sort of, give me some songs like this one. Yeah. Well, so what I wonder, what I noticed about Pandora back when I used it, and I don't use it much myself. Wait, it works in Malaysia, but not Canada? Oh, I don't know that I, I haven't used it recently at all. But when I, when Pandora first came out, what I would notice about it is, it would say things, you know, I'd put in a song that I liked. Let's say I put in a new pornographer song. And it would say things like, um, okay, we've analyzed this and, and you know, because Pandora claims, at least in the beginning, it claimed to be this sort of big algorithmic music genome thing where it, like, analyzed the foundations of all the music and found you things that, you know, were similar to what you like listening to. And it'd say, all right, based on this song... I think you like things with an upbeat rock tempo, moderate syncopation, and like varied instrumentation or something like that, right? I, yeah, it stopped doing that, though. I used to actually find that the most interesting. Well, I thought it was interesting, too, except I started thinking about it. I was like, 
that's just what that's what everybody likes about music, isn't it? Like, no, I mean, I think it got some some aspects of like my musical tastes like more correct. I wish you could actually see its model. Uh, ditto for Netflix. I would love to see Netflix split out the ratings between this is a good movie that everyone loves. All right, actually, let me back this up. You could do the Netflix rating as like a Bayesian thing, right? So there's some base rate that the movie is good. Like everyone right. agrees that I don't know. Right, that's your prior that you know. Yeah, like you've 95% got a prior. percent of people like the Avengers, so it's probably your well. Pick something that's more moderate, I guess. Like, uh, like sixty percent of people liked the new Superman movie, Man of Steel. Yeah, no, 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 but a, a big prior is the right, the right way to go, right? Like, uh, oh, okay, so all right, so ninety percent of people like everybody loved Forrest Gump, right? Everyone found Forrest Gump at least pretty decent. Like, yeah. Okay. But then there's also the you-specific factor, where it's like, this movie is particularly good for you. Right. And I feel like when, at least when I first started using Netflix, it would give me recommendations that were sort of tuned for me. And then less so over time? Well, now it recommends movies, but you're like, yeah, I heard that was good. And not yeah. like, oh, the, this is a thing you would never have otherwise come across. I don't know. Is, do you know if there's like a site that would... Because I guess if you had enough people's uh, tells Netflix you... rankings... Well, it's tricky because what's it going to base? I mean, it you know it bases it on what you've rated in theory, but what? Yeah, but if if you had what if you had the rating, if you had if I had my rating for this movie and your rating for this movie, and like Amanda Casal's rating for this movie, and I picked Amanda because her taste in movies is fairly different from mine. Yeah, you could back the prior out of all of those, I think, and you could see the the intrinsic movie thing and the recommended specifically for you thing. Yeah. Well, I, I Ooh, you know, I think project time. I mean, there's probably big money for us if we could come up with a better recommendation engine. Right. Because I mean, there's obviously everyone's trying to do this, but none of them are super smart. Like, you know, when you look up, a, when you buy a screwdriver on Amazon, Amazon's like, Hey, we noticed that you've been looking at screwdrivers a lot. Maybe we can sell you these nine different types of screwdrivers, you know, and I'm like, well, I bought one already and you only need, you know, one of this type of screwdriver. So no thanks. That is a thing that Amazon really should learn is uh, there are certain there are certain items that you don't you're not into. Well, what would be way cooler, of course, is if, you know, like a good example is over Christmas, I bought this weird tri-wing screwdriver to replace the I think it was the battery on my on my MacBook. And it's this particular screwdriver could only be used to either take apart a Wii or a MacBook Pro. So what would be logical for it to suggest was would not be a bunch of other tools and screwdrivers, but to suggest like, hey, are you uh, possibly replacing a MacBook Pro battery or are you taking apart a Wii? Because if so, I can recommend you this other stuff for people that have been repairing their Wiis and MacBook Pros. Um, but it doesn't usually uh. do that. I mean, it does like the customers also bought X and Y. It doesn't seem like that always works as well. Oh, I, so you know how that's that's like usually not awful. It's like the yeah. dumbest. It's like the dumbest algorithm possible. Yeah. But uh, no, no, I was thinking the opposite. So you could figure out that you know, like uh, once someone has, I don't know, a screwdriver, that yeah. like niche in their life is pretty well satisfied. Well, right. Whereas once I've bought, once I've bought, in, once I bought like uh, I don't know the box set for. Futurama. I will still consume right. additional DVDs. 
Well, but it needs to be a smarter, right? Like, so if, that's a good example because if you buy Futurama, what happens now is if you buy Futurama box set, which is seasons one through four, it'll be like, clearly you like Futurama. Maybe you'd like to buy Futurama season two. And you're like, no, I've already, that's in the thing I bought, right? So it needs to get somehow, it, it needs to have dependencies that are resolved. But of course, these are like, you can't just do that with massive correlations necessarily, right? Yeah, well, maybe. Well, I mean, I guess what's probably happening is, I don't know how exactly it works, but I'm presuming, I'm presuming it probably doesn't have a, it probably just draws associations that are informed both by what people look at and what people actually buy, but there's not a good distinction between those, right? Because like, presumably everyone who buys the Futurama box set probably also browsed the individual seasons and then chose to buy the box set, right? The problem being, of course, that if you do buy the box set, you don't buy the individual seasons and vice versa. So the buying would probably be very uncorrelated, but the viewing together would be very correlated. But it probably just does something like add them together, right? The the correlation from viewing together and the correlation from buying together. You know what I mean? Into one big recommendation. But probably it needs to get a little bit, you know, more sophisticated about how it, you know, if people never buy these things together, even if they look at them together then it should be able to figure out that you only need one of them, but that you might then like similar things that are sort of more secondarily correlated. Yeah. I, well, it's funny. So I just logged into Netflix to see if I could suss out how its recommendations work. And it's weird because some of them are like very clearly tailored to me. Like it recommends I might like the in-betweeners, uh, which yeah. I do. I've seen that elsewhere. Um, and so that's probably driven by like a Krauss-specific factor. Uh, ditto for spaced yeah. and uh, Louis C.K. could go either way, like right. But then there's a couple. It has this Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston uh, romantic comedy called "Just Go with It," right? That I would not watch in a million years. Well, it's interesting because Netflix seems to. So that must be driven by like some huge background thing. Although it says its guest for me is under three stars, so I have no idea why that's recommended. Well, one thing you've probably noticed is that Netflix seems to be strongly, um, well, I don't know how strongly, but it, it definitely likes recommending genres of things to you, right? And Netflix has a weird kind of complicated genre system, which I think is a step in the right direction, which it'll say like, oh. You might like quirky workplace comedies. Yes, and I do. Yeah, exactly. But the problem is, of course, like if you, let's say that you rate uh let's say you say that you like the office and office space and i don't know some other workspace comedy um that's fine but it's then going to recommend all of them in that genre even though some of them are clearly crappy right what it doesn't do is that secondary level of analysis and say like oh you tend to only like things that you know have a critical rating of 3 out of 4 stars or better or 3 out of 5 stars or better and you like these genres, right? So it doesn't do any sort of secondary level analysis, right? Yeah. Or it doesn't seem to. I think it does, you know, sort of like simple associations, like the, the most commonly, like if you rank the office, you know, five stars, you know, your, your, the next thing that, or the thing that is most highly correlated with the rankings for the office is, you know, office space or whatever. It might do that, but it, it doesn't sort of combine, to, you know, or, or it might just lump all the things in one genre together that some guy has compiled at Netflix HQ, but it doesn't seem to like 
do any uh, interaction level analysis between those variables. Yeah, that's true. And what's interesting is I bet it also, so taking the example of like um, Forrest Gump, for example, let's say 90% of people liked Forrest Gump. Now, actually, that's a good example of one that also probably, have you seen that at all recently? No. I don't think, I don't think it will have aged well when we see it again. That's what I hear from people that have watched it again. I think that's one that was like very, like almost too avant-garde for its, or not avant-garde, but like. No, avant-garde is probably about right. Well, it wasn't avant-garde in the sense of like it was high-minded and snooty, but it was. But the style was was pretty novel for the 90s. Yeah, and it used this like very highly publicized CGI stuff. Why the hell would you CGI a feather, by the way? Well, I've always wondered that. Like, it's like you can drop a feather for, well, zero dollars. Well, they actually, I can tell you that because I, I saw some like making of special. I mean, they did film an actual feather for that. What they did is they like hooked a feather by a string to a fan and filmed it, you know, for quite a long time. Oh, really? Yeah, and then they like superimposed that on on the background because, of course, you can't. What you can't do is get a feather to fall, you know, like 30 meters onto Tom Hanks's leg. So they didn't, they didn't render the feather from scratch. They, uh, they blue screened the feather, essentially. I've been under the impression for literally 20 years that that entire feather was CGI'd. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, my recollection is that they got like, you know, like a feather blowing around in a, a small wind tunnel and filmed it for a long, long time and then like took the best feather twisting uh, footage and superimposed it on, you know, the, uh, the crane shot of or whatever it was, that, where they kind of zoomed out on Tom Hanks on the bench. Anyway. Oh, you're right. Huh. But, so let's say 90% of people liked Forrest Gump, right? Let's say on Netflix you also rate that you liked Forrest Gump. The problem with that, of course, is that you have not really, in a Bayesian sense, added much information to what Netflix knows about you, right? You know what I mean? Because... If you have the same rating that 90% of people have for something, you're not changing Netflix's expectation of you very much with regard to, you know, if it just assumed you were the average customer, you pretty much have confer confirmed its expectations, right? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. We should say, as a brief interjection, we don't have time to explain Bayesian statistics, but Bayesian statistics... Well, we do, really. So you have a background model um, that people call the prior... And it's just sort of the probability that anyone would like this movie. Then you have a likelihood, which is uh, sort of uh, the model part, where it's the probability that you would like this movie given some model. And you can do some math where you can flip this around. So instead of the probability that you like the movie given the model, you can say the probability of... What the model is. The yeah. That you would like the... Uh, probability... Anyways, edit this part well, out. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so generally speaking, so with Bayesian reasoning, you can say... Right, it, you can say... If you know, generally speaking, you say like, or the most likely thing you would normally say in real life is, what is the probability of observing a certain pattern of data if something is true? Right? So. Okay, I have, I have a good example for you. Okay. So, well, this is the one that where it always gets used to. So you have some emails, and you, you want to know whether a given email is spam or not. The probability of the email is spam. Yep. And if you, if you knew that off the top of your head, you would be golden and you could make a million dollars. Right. But you don't have that. But what you do have is you have the probability that 
so you can calculate the probability of all your emails this summer spam. So you have, you know, 100 spams out of 10,000 emails. There's your probability. And what you also can have is a probability that given that an email is spam, it has a certain distribution of words. And given that it's not spam, uh, it has some other distribution of words. Yep. And so you can combine those two to flip it around. So you can go from the probability of the words given that it's spam to the probability that it's spam given that it has the words. Right. That's a good example. Because that is really what, uh, at least I, I think most mail programs now use as their spam algorithm is something Bayesian. Yep. Um, that, so that's a good example. Yeah. So in neuroimaging, the classic example is, because this is a, a heavily debated topic, like, you know, if you say like a certain mental activity activates a certain part of the brain, that's, you know, we'd like that to be true, but at least, you know, when we're actually measuring this with uh, a real scanner or something like that, you know, it's only sometimes true, right? Like not all studies agree on what cognitive actions activate what brain areas. And the false assumption, so it's called the problem of reverse inference, right? So like uh, one great example is uh, the amygdala. So the amygdala is a brain area. It's Latin for almond because the amygdala is about the size and shape of an almond. And it frequently is found to activate in studies um, like fear conditioning or anything where fearful or emotional uh, information is present. So your natural assumption as a human is to form an association between the amygdala and fear. And what you're tempted to say is that activation in the amygdala represents fear, right? Yep. But that's just an association people have noticed. Like when, when they do a fear study, they very frequently see activation in the amygdala. But what that ignores is the fact that you also sometimes see amygdala activation in other studies that aren't about fear, right? So the, the problem with this in science is that oftentimes people are like, hey, our study activated the amygdala, which must have meant that people were feeling fear or anxiety or whatever, even if the task was not like a fearful faces task or something like that, when in fact that's an invalid thing to do because let's say... 100, let's say 100% of the studies that involve fear activate the amygdala, maybe 100% of studies, period, activate the amygdala, right? You don't know that if you are only looking inside the subset of papers that are, are about fear, right? So what you essentially do is instead of saying, the Bayesian thing to do is say like, well, we have observed many times that if the study involves fear, it is very likely to activate the amygdala. That doesn't mean the inverse is true necessarily. What we have to also do is incorporate the base rate of like what percentage of studies overall in the population activate the amygdala. And those two things together will let us know what the probability is. If we see amygdala activation, what the probability is that fear was involved in the study. Right. Yep. So that's kind of, that's, that's, so anyway, all that is to say in a Bayesian sense, if, if, if you've already surveyed a large percent of the population and 90% of the population liked Forrest Gump, then it makes sense to say that your prior for, for you, Matt Krause's liking of Forrest Gump, you know, your prediction is that you will 90% like it. You'll give it four and a half stars out of five or whatever. So if you give it four to five stars, if you're using a Bayesian kind of algorithm, then you haven't actually told Netflix very much. You've told it, you know, now, if you, if you rated it zero stars, you've told Netflix a lot. Like, if you hated Forrest Gump, um, that tells Netflix a lot about you. But it doesn't tell Netflix very much about you, or it doesn't update Netflix's prior of you very much. Well, no, no, no. No, I guess it does, actually, because it, the posterior should change. 
the posterior is, I guess, uh, what you call the combination of the prior and the, the model. Yeah. Well, because they're multiplied together. Well, wait a minute. So the posterior in this, I'm trying to think mathematically. But it's, it's the product of P movie is good and P Krauss thinks the movie is good. Oh, right. Or the movie is good given that it's Krauss. Yeah, I have to sit through and work through the theorem now. Anyway, we don't want to get into the details, but you would yeah. agree that like, but, but in other words, in an information sense, you're not, uh, giving, you're not giving Netflix much more information than it already had about you by just knowing that you're a human. Like, in other words, if, if Netflix, so, so the, the easiest and dumbest thing you could do for any prediction algorithm is basically like the Rotten Tomatoes approach, which is, 60% of people liked this. Thus, we think there's a 60% chance you will like this, right? Yep. So that's just the prior. That, yeah, you just, well, but like, you know, that's the simplest model of all is you just assume everyone is a prototype, is an example of the population, right? So, of course, what you want to do if you want to make individualized recommendations is figure out in what ways the individual differs from the population, right? So basically, every piece of information you give them that is like everybody else in the population doesn't tell them anything new, right? Yeah, okay, that's, that's fair enough. That's what I was getting at, I guess. And so it's only your, your patterns of behavior. Well, it's only... So a good example is something that is not liked by everyone, right? So there are certainly going to be movies and something like Fight Club or... Um, uh, here's a good example. Moulin Rouge. Not universally acclaimed, it has something like a 60% or so on Rotten Tomatoes, but that's not because everyone likes it a little bit. It's because some people really love it and some people really hate it and some people are in between, right? So that's a movie that would actually tell you, tell Netflix quite a lot. And so it would probably want to rate or it would probably want to weight Moulin Rouge much heavier in its model of you and what you like than it should weight like the Avengers or Forrest Gump or something that everyone kind of agrees on. Right. Yeah. No, no, that, that, that's about right. Uh, but I don't think any of these algorithms actually do that. Maybe they do, but I kind of doubt it. I think they just kind of like take all the things you've rated and see what all the things are that correlate with uh, those things and uh, and just spit that back out. Oh, no, no, no. I, I guess I'm more curious. I'd like to see like a crowd specific factor from Netflix because, you know, things that um, appeal to my particular quirky tastes like, I would like to watch, but maybe I would not subject, like, my entire family to. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine, like, I don't know, my uncle, like, enjoying uh, pie, for example. Right. Well, I think that's what I'm kind of saying, but I don't think it's doing that very much, right? I don't think it's... Um, I think it's just looking at what you have already viewed and then seeing what the population thinks goes with the things that you have viewed, right? I guess that's another way of putting it. So it's only using, you know what I mean? Like it's using what you have viewed and liked as the basis of what to choose, but then it's using like the mass. So it's like saying, you know, if you say, if you gave four stars to Forrest Gump, then it's going to say, all right, well, of all people that gave four stars to Forrest Gump, uh, most of them also gave uh, four or five stars to Jurassic Park. Which makes sense because it was a similarly uh, popular movie at a similar point in time, right? So I'd recommend Jurassic Park to you. But that doesn't, I think it's not taking into account like your overall 
propensity for liking a certain style of movie, right? There's nothing about Forrest Gump. And, well, there's some things that are similar between Forrest Gump and Jurassic Park, I guess. But you know what I mean? Like, neither of them is very informative because most people that were alive in a certain era liked both movies, you know? Yeah. Anyway, I think it could be smarter. I, that's that's basically Because, like, clearly you get a lot of recommendations in the genre of the things you like that, you know, if, for example, like, I like you know, superhero movies as much as the next guy, but I don't like all superhero movies, right? So, but I, if you, if you only included superhero movies that get above 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, that would probably be a very good algorithm for recommending superhero movies to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it's doing that kind of thing. I think it's doing only one level of those at a time, but not ever combining them. But anyway, part of this is also, I think... I don't know if you've found this, but have you found that you tend to agree, your enjoyment of a movie tends to agree more with its Rotten Tomatoes ranking as your life goes on? I haven't really checked. I, I certainly have found that a combination, so that's sort of why I use that example. Like, if I know the basic genre of something and its Rotten Tomatoes making uh, rating, I can tell you pretty well how much I'm going to like it. I mean, I'm, I'm sometimes wrong, but not too often. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I, I certainly don't like everything that's rated well on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, like sort of really intense dramas that I don't usually go for. And, but I can sort of tell you, like, say it's a comedy and it's got like 70%, I will probably like it. You know? Um, with rare exceptions. Anyway. Anyway. No, I haven't, but I, I will. I don't check Rotten Tomatoes religiously, so I will check it. Well, yeah, I... I just wonder, like, to what extent we are um, calibrating ourselves to, you know, as human beings to the uh, to the group consensus. Anyway, well, that was we certainly followed up on our promise to talk about that uh, algorithm more than we should have. <laughs> done and done. And since we're yeah. recommending, since we're talking about recommendations, I have a book recommendation for you. Okay. Uh, Primo Levi's The Periodic Table. Hmm. Tell me more. So he, he was an Italian chemist sort of around World War II to okay. afterwards. So he actually ended up in a concentration camp, but survived. And a lot okay. of his writing is about, you know, sort of the horrors of the Holocaust. Yeah. But uh, he, he was also, a, you know, an industrial chemist. And so this is his memoir, sort of. And each chapter is sort of a riff on a different element or group of elements. Okay. That sort of ties into one of his memories. So some of them are very literal. Mm. So he worked in like a filmmaking company. And so the chapter called Silver is about you know, making film. and stuff. Okay, yeah. But there are others, like, uh, there's one that's, I think it's helium. It's a Nobel gas, or one of the Nobel gases. Yeah. And it's about how, like, his family, being Jewish, didn't really mingle with the neighbors, mm. sort of, during the fascist times. Um, Interesting. It sounds like a weird conceit, but it's, it's like, really, really, really well written. And okay. pretty fascinating. I think you would enjoy it. I love to check that out. The, like, British Academy of Sciences or something said it was the best science book ever. Really? Okay. Yeah, which is, it, it's not particularly science-y, but it's sort of like, I mean, it's it's like very much the opposite in terms of tone of sure yeah. you're joking, Mr. Feynman, and that, you know, it sort of makes you think that a lot of people are horrible human beings instead of right. like, ooh, I should go work at a strip club. Yeah, yeah. But it's that sort of like flavor of being a scientist. It's, it's sort of got that same thing going for it. Right. But he quit being a chemist to become a full-time writer. And, you know, survived for another 20 or 30 years. So okay. he can yeah. write really well. That's good. 
And it's short, so, you know. I was sort of hoping the twist at the end would be that he turned out to be Magneto in the X-Men, but I guess not, huh? No. Well, no. I mean, I guess there's still time, but... Well, he, he, he died. Oh. <laughs> I guess there's not. Anyway, what about superheroes and movies? All right, so let's move... So we've been talking for nigh upon four hours, although most of that... Three and a half. Well... Although most of that was... Let's try reconnecting. Oh, no, you sound like a robot. Yeah, most of the... Your Skype is... Well, or my Skype. Our Skype is finally working, which is a blessing. But uh, I guess we should probably be wrapping up pretty soon here. It's all about the Bayesian updating. It's the probability that people turn this off, given the... Well, yeah. It is interesting that we've kind of gotten on a theme on each podcast unintentionally, though, right? Like, oh, no, that's all skill. Back. That's all skill. Oh, right. That's... That's our plan all along, was that this was to be the Bayesian prediction. I was up, I was up all night uh, plotting out, you know, diagrams of what we talk about. Oh, interesting. I merely used an algorithm that said people like podcasts about boobies, and uh, that's what I was going to talk about the whole time. I feel like a podcast about boobies would be frustrating. would be kind of missing the point, I think, yeah. Also, a f- food podcast would be like, mm, this is delicious. Yeah, you can't have any. Don't you guys wish you were eating what we're eating? So we should go uh, lightning round. Okay, I have one lightning round entry then. Okay. Have you seen these uh, atomic force microscopy pictures where you can actually see the chemical structure of stuff? I feel like I have, but I can't. Well, that, that boy in his Adam video, you kind of got a whiff of that, right? Yeah. Like this you is, could this kind is... of see the, like, the field lines kind of thing. The thing is with that, right, you, you sort of have to take them at their word that those are atoms. Well, yeah. So here you can see the bonds, and they look exactly like the like the structure, the skeleton diagrams from chemistry. I mean, it's just amazing because you know you learn about this in chemistry, and you're like, what are the odds it actually? What are the odds it actually looks like that? And it actually does. Well, or the converse, right? Where like you you grow up seeing this um, these images in textbooks, and you make you know I, I'm sure, I'm assuming you took a, at least one chemistry class where you had the little atom models where you had to like build molecules with the with the little plastic models yep oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry i'm a little distracted because on wired.com there's an advertisement with a really hot girl uh or something see no one likes podcasts about that anyway yeah she was wearing this blue shirt guys it was great you're missing out <laughs> that'll be our second podcast yeah so if you click through it actually has a picture of those little ball diagram things too so this is a good example. Yeah, so you made those little, like, uh, plastic models, and it sort of goes both ways, right? Like, you were apparently saying, like, what are the chances that it really looks like this? Uh, my sort of reaction, you know, when I saw some of this was I, was I was like, oh, we didn't already know this? Oh, yeah, I guess we did just kind of assume it all from, uh, you know, from measurements of things that, you know, they were in this shape and they were hexagonal or whatever. So it is, yeah, it is kind of cool when you measure what is supposedly a hexagonally shaped molecule. And you're like, Hey, what do you know? It really is a little hexagon there. Oh yeah. I mean, it's not like I disbelieved in the carbon, but uh, it's cool to see it like actually appear. So maybe we can, uh, we, we didn't talk about so much. Once again, we talked about recommendations and music and uh, maybe we should wrap up. Yeah, we should wrap up. Okay, well, maybe this is a good lightning round. I, what I was going to say is what we didn't, do, again, talk about was the IQ and background motion thing. Can you do that as a lightning round, or is that... Let's uh, do that as a fuller thing, because I actually need to read about it for work. Okay. 
And, you know, God forbid we be informed in our discussions. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll just do one more lightning round topic, which is the wire veins blue thing, because that's a pretty quick explanation. It's not what you were always told as a kid. What you were told as a kid is that your blood is blue when it's, well, you've, you've heard various things, that your blood is blue when it's inside your blood vessels, but then turns red when it's exposed to the oxygen in the air. That's not true. Well, you would be dead if that were true, right? Because you have to have oxygen in your blood. Well, I guess the idea is that it's, it's exposed to more, right? Or that, or that I guess, like, when it's in your veins, you know, it's deoxygenated because it's in your blood, because it, it's in your veins. But when it's exposed to the air, it gets oxygenated again and turns red, right? Okay. But that's not true, although I'm given to believe that it is true that oxygenated blood is slightly different in color. It is, because that's how you measure, uh, what is PO2? Partial oxygen. Oh, like through the skin? Oxygen saturation. Yeah, you put a thing, uh, like if you're ever in an ambulance, they put a thing on your finger. Like, like, like pulse ox, yeah. Yeah, pulse ox. That's true. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, because you shine like a, a bright light into your finger, basically, and, and look at that. Right. So there is a difference, but it's more like brighter red versus duller red, right? It's not actually blue, even though, like, we can all agree that if you look at, like, the veins on your wrist, it looks like the actual color blue, right? Yep. Just checked. Yes, but, uh, you know, if you were to slit your wrists open, which... Uh, Okay. You know, I think Checking. we in science are tempted to do at all times, but we'll avoid uh, <laughs> avoid at this particular moment. So anyway, the answer is your blood is never actually blue. It's the sh we'll just link to the full answer, I guess, but it's actually kind of um an interaction of the what wavelengths like your blood and your skin absorb versus scatter and how deep in the skin the vessel is. Oh, so it's just a contrast thing. Well, it's basically a contrast thing. Yeah, that like your skin basically absorbs a certain pattern of wavelengths. And what is it? So it's it's actually kind of an interesting contrast thing because apparently, typically, your skin. So this is all assuming you're Caucasian because you can't really see, uh, like you know, if you're if you have dark, darker, more melanin uh, enriched skin you're just not going to be able to see the, that blue color of your blood vessels as well. So let's assume you're, well, let's assume you're Krauss and you're a ghostly pale Caucasian. Your skin normally reflects about 10 times the red light that it does blue light, right? So your skin is naturally more red than blue if you're Caucasian, right? Okay. More red light than blue light. But your... The, the ratio of red light to blue light reflected by the... But the vessel is only 3 to 2, apparently. The vessel is only 3 to 2. Well, the long and the short of it is uh, basically that, you know, certain wavelengths only get so deep into your skin. And so you can only even see blood vessels that are about half a millimeter below the surface, which is only veins. So you can only see veins. So if you could see an artery, it would also be blue. If you could see an artery, it would also be blue if it were the right depth. But you just can't see the arteries to begin with. It's, it's basically, yeah, it's basically uh, an interaction of how deep into your skin the red and blue wavelengths penetrate in the first place and how much red versus blue your skin or your blood vessels reflect. Um, that's a terrible explanation. You should read this blog posting for a better explanation. Anyway, shall we? So it's 1.30 or 1.50 in the morning now uh, for me, and, and you've wasted your, your morning. All right, so we should wrap this up. 
So we should wrap this up and hopefully get about an hour of uh, good podcasting out of it. Um, any final remarks? No, I think we're good. Okay, so uh, uh, sorry if we were a little disjointed tonight. We had a lot of technical issues to resolve. and uh, I think we're both sick, too. Well, yeah, we're both recovering from colds and stuff, so sorry about all the... We had to probably remove a lot of hacking and stuff by the time you hear this. So visit our website, sshmm.wordpress.com. That has show notes with all the links we talked about and errata and things like that occasionally. And please write in with suggestions or things you want to hear more about or things that we've screwed up. Or if you'd like to be on the show, we're always looking yes. for exciting things to talk about. Yes. So we will hopefully maybe have a guest star on the next episode. Uh, we'll see about that. Yeah, email us. if you. Uh, it's supersciencehappyhour, all one word, at gmail.com. The word all one word is not in the email address. Neither is that aside. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. You've seen that. Uh, Back to the self-referential. Yes. You've seen that McSweeney's post of like email addresses that are pos- impossible to give over the phone, right? No. Is it like something with a dot? Hold on. Email addresses that it would be really annoying to give out over the phone. This is a, this is worth linking to because it's a pretty good list. Well, actually, I guess it only works visually because it's things like Mike underscore 2004 at yahoo.com, but underscore is written out. Mike at yahoo.com at hotmail.com. Right. Mike underscore word, all one word. Oh, so that's basically <laughs> what exactly I guess. Yeah, so, uh, this will make so much sense to you guys once you actually go to our website and get the link and view it. So that's incentive for you to go to the website. <laughs> the last one is one, one, the first, just the number, the second spelled out at hotmail.com, which does accurately describe, well, it's impossible. You know what? This is impossible to describe much as the article is intended to be. So uh, <laughs> why am I even trying? Point for you, McSweeties. The, the most horrible one is, a A A A A that's six A's at Yahoo.com. Which of course is actually five A's. <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. Uh congratulations, Michael Ward. You have uh abused us. And now we must kill you with radioactive cookies. Okay, anyway, the, but the actual email address is superscienceshappyhour at gmail.com. There are no underscores or other weird characters in that aside from the at symbol. At hotmail.com. No, no, hotmail.com. <laughs> and it's sshmm.wordpress.com for the website. If you are like a close personal friend of ours and you, you know, don't want us to know it's you, you can send us an anonymous email. Or if you're an internet stranger, uh, feel free to just insult us as much as you like. Rate us on iTunes, etc. please. Send us money if you like for the microphone fund or the... Uh, or the beer fund. Yeah. We have uh, very strict accounting standards, so it'll be fine. Or the bandwidth fund. I mean, we got our first bandwidth. In theory, we're supposed to be going off of Amazon's free bandwidth, but uh, actually we got a very small bandwidth bill last month, so I think I'm going to cut Ooh. down the, uh, well, it was like five bucks. Do I owe you like 250 Well, if you really care, but I, I figured I would just absorb Next that. Next time I see you, I'll just buy you a beer. Yeah, uh, but I think what I'll do is try to cut down the file size a bit uh, in future episodes, because we... RobotKrauseAndJohnson.com Well... I was going to say, we could probably not do this in stereo, even though I kind of like having me come from slightly more the left ear and you coming from slightly more the right ear. You can fake that with mono, too, I think. Uh, I guess, well, wait, no, you can't. I thought there was some way to fake it. How could you possibly fake it? It's the same exact signal going to both ears in mono. Maybe pitch shift? I don't know. I thought you could fake it. 
I think you can fake like front to back, right? But maybe not. Yeah, maybe that's it. Front to back is all. This is actually be a fascinating topic for next time. So let's talk about it next time. Yeah. Well, I get to teach our undergrads about the LSO and the MSO, and they love it. Yeah, that was my that was my favorite part of Brain and Thought too. I was being sarcastic, but I did like it myself. They hate it. Oh, it's so elegant. It is pretty cool. We can talk about that next time. Fail everyone who hates it. They're dead to me. Yeah, well, that would be everyone. All right, so next time you can enjoy hearing about the entertainingly named Lateral Superior Olive, which is neither, which is not particularly superior nor particularly olive-flavored. It's true. So we'll, we talked about the almonds this time. We'll talk about the olives next time, maybe. Yeah, rate us, send us money if you like, be our guest stars, etc. And uh, I think that's about it. All right, uh, so long for now, folks. All right, goodbye. See you next time. Monday, Monday, Monday. Ah, so many devices. I can, and you are not crackling. Okay, that's good. So, uh, I mean, once again, let's maybe go a few minutes before. I, so the problem seemed to occur when I was in, like, in for about two minutes or something like that. So many of my problems occur when we've been in for about two minutes. Uh, but, <laughs> oh, yeah. Too easy. Yeah. Um, but it was one of the weirdest and yet, in a way, least awkward breakups of my life insofar as, like, the last time that we hung out, I was just kind of like, eh, I don't really, I don't, I never really knew where this thing was going. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to maybe hold off on calling her, you know, if she wants to call me, then maybe we'll have a conversation. And never heard back from her. And I was like, oh, well, if I never hear back from her, then maybe I just won't call her either. And that'll just be it. So it was weirdly mutual. And that, cause we were like chatting fairly consistently up till that point that I sort of made that decision. And seemingly she made the same decision the same day. So maybe we're either that or she got hit by a truck. I'm not sure which. <laughs> 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 but ironically that would that would make you perfect for each other <laughs> in so far as what i like people that have been hit by trucks oh no not, not the truck oh part. right yeah it is funny it's like, oh. it is funny that if if that's what happened like uh it seemed to be yeah we were like remarkably on sync in a way about how uh how it wasn't you know working out or anything but uh I want to burn this reviewer's house down. What did they say? So we're, we got like 99.4% accuracy. Okay. And they're, they're, one of the reviewers was like, well, I'd like to see you use these other approaches because they might perform better. And it was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really concerned about that 0.6 of the time. Well, the thing is, I don't even think all the examples were labeled correctly to begin with. So... <laughs> yeah. So wait, what is it that you were, try- what was, what is it that you were doing 99%? Accurately. So you you have a tweet and you say what language the tweet is in. Okay. So it's like it's like pretty worked out for like long documents. Yeah. Like you know this has been doable for a long time and for like Western European languages. Right. But you know there's like no resource for like some bizarre Indian language. Yeah. That somehow yeah. has a lot of Twitter users. So the idea was if you could do it with like fairly little data from uh, fairly short tweets. Okay. And you can. But I was just like, yes, 
Yes, I will go up from from perfect. Also, I mean, I don't know how much you filtered, but like, I would imagine that at least 0.6% of tweets have no clearly identifiable language anyway, or a bunch of hashtags or other Twitter users' names, or you know what I mean? Like, yes, this we put in a section called discussion where we discussed such limitations. Right. If the tweet is like, like, you know, a bunch of exclamation points, then like, you know, what, what the hell are you supposed to do with that? It could be any language. Right. Well, you know, if half of them are inverted, it's Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, is that something, that's a good question. Like when people in Spanish uh, just want to express like extreme surprise, do they have to alternate up and down exclamation points or does one direction only suffice? I now I'm looking through my Facebook feed for Spanish speakers who are surprised. I assume we're not going to easily get an example of that. Like, I mean, maybe they just don't do the thing that English speakers would do, where they just put a bunch of exclamation points in a row. I do know that there is a Mexican, or not just Mexican, but a Spanish interrobang. Really? Like an upside down one too? Yeah, because I mean, if you have an interrobang in one direction, you have to have it in the other way. Although I believe there is debate, if I'm if I remember correctly, like you know the combined interrobang symbol, right? Yeah, yeah. The, they're like one thing together. But if you do it the more standard comic book way of like question mark exclamation point, I believe there is debate in the Spanish speaking community as to like which direction they should or which order they should go in at the beginning of the sentence. Okay, this is definitely a Wikipedia article I read late at night at one point. And I can't remember the full, but there's a long, extensive discussion of interrobangs in, on Wikipedia. Do you think there's a porn called interrobang? Probably. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Inverted interrobang. Oh, older usage, still official but not widespread, recommended mixing the punctuation marks, like an upside-down exclamation point with a right-side-up question mark, or vice versa. That would be weird. Hmm. But actually, it kind of makes sense. No me gusta. Are there a lot of prostitutes in uh, Montreal? My, my work permit, which I would love to scan and put online, except for the fact that it has like all of my you know, identif- identifying information, Yeah, says that my work permit is valid as long as I am not engaged in the, the sex trade. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know, I guess. I asked Ken if they put that on everyone's work permit or if it was just sort of a shot at me by the border guard. <laughs> That's for dressing so slutty when you applied for your work permit. <laughs> or not slutty enough. They're like, oh no, that won't do. Maybe I shouldn't have shown up to do my immigration paperwork and, uh, you know, short, short cutoffs and uh, nipple clamps. Well, the thing is, it has to be a Canadian. It has to be a denim G-string for Canada. Oh, that's true. Well, denim or G-string, doesn't the Canadian tuxedo, isn't that denim on top and bottom? Yeah. That's the standard uh, issue. So I assume Canadian burlesque is like a denim G-string and like plaid pasties on the nipples. Mm. I assume, yeah, it involves a lot of maple syrup pouring on and uh, I assume plenty of beaver this and beaver that. Ah, that was going to be my joke. Oh, yeah. Are you still recording or have you stopped? And are now I'm still recording. recording. Okay. Because <laughs> I feel like we're getting funnier but dirtier as time goes on, but I don't think we can actually use any of this. All right, but I, I should go because I have to go to the bathroom also. Yeah, I, I, I need to sleep. All right, so I'm stopping. Right. You're stopping. Stopping now.